Hey, true believers, this is Stan Lee bringing you a sneak peek at the amazing Spider-Man 2. I don't know about you, but I am so excited about this, and I won't waste any more of your time. I want you to get to the real deal right now. Here it is. You know what it is I love about being Spider-Man? Everything. Peter Parker. There he is, boy. It's been 10 years. What have you been up to? I do some web design. Yet you under surveillance. Why? Isn't that the question of the day? Nothing is what I thought it was. I once told you that secrets have a cost. The truth does too. My name is Richard Parker. I have discovered what Oscorp was going to use my research for. What is all this? The future. We have plans for you, Peter Parker. You wanted to be the hero. Need a hand? Now you gotta pay the price. We have the power now. We can change the world. Then let's go catch a spider. I made a choice. This is my path. bigger than you, Peter. I'm the only one who can stop them. I'm Spider-Man. I love you. Don't hate me. Peter! I was thinking, Andy, did you read the recent issue of Superior Spider-Man? I've not read 31 yet, no. Because uh-huh. <laughs> I'm, I'm on mail order, so I only get my comics at the oh, beginning. Oh, so I'm going to spoil the shit out of this for you. <laughs> yeah, you son of a bitch. <laughs> no, I'm not gonna. I would, I would never do that. I am. I am so. I was. What? I, if if you said you had read it, my question was going to be: Should we talk about the contents? Since it's going to be two weeks later by the time this airs. Yeah. But uh, no, since, since you haven't, we 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 won't uh, we won't discuss it. I would say I would say it's you know no spoilers at all. I would say it's a satisfying ending to the whole thing and and. Ready, ready to start up again. Good. That's well. That's all I wanted from it. When you pointed out, this is just Reign of the Superman. This is just Nightfall, and it was one of those light bulb over the head moments. And you went, "He's absolutely right. Paul's absolutely correct. That's what this is." And the minute you said that, I suddenly just let all that angry baggage go, and just went with the story. And since then, I've really been digging it. It's not perfect. No, there's, there's moments that are perfect. 
So is that not perfect? But but the story, I, it's one of the better stories. Yeah, I've been uh, for the most part, I've been thoroughly enjoying it. I'm not crazy about most of the artwork in the stories. I've not minded. That I don't recall there being an issue where I've thought this looks like crap. No, no, I wouldn't go that far. Uh, I'm not a fan of uh, Umberto Ramos. Oh no, yeah, yeah, I get where you're coming with that. He's very. I think he's love or hate him, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, I do like Ryan Stegman when he does. It. I like Ryan Stegman. I like the, Ryan Stegman the, a great deal. The house style they work with is kind of similar, but I think Stegman make, makes it work much better. Mm. Yeah, he's been really good. And what about 2099's coming back? Yeah. I know I'm excited about that. You know what? I have never, not that I've ne- I never read the entire run of the original 2099. I want to sit down and read it, hopefully, before the new ones come out. But I, ha- I do have a lot of assigned reading from uh, Grandmaster Scott on Planet of the Apes Month that I have to do. I'm looking forward to that. Back to the bin. I'm waiting now? Yeah! Alright, la! That sounded very un-Arnold-like. I'll try and do an Arnold, but I don't don't think you really want one. (laughs) British one. (laughs) That wasn't that bad. Give you different takes, you can use whichever one you want. La! They're all going in. Go to the chopper! (laughs) They're all going in. Well, if, if anybody listening hasn't figured out, this is Back to the Bins, Hey Kids Comics variety. And uh, I'm Paul Spataro, and I'm here with my buddy, Andy Leyland. Hello, thank you for inviting me. Always a pleasure to be on Bins. It's a pleasure to have you, and we are joined by Scott Gardner. Hey! <laughs> How's it going? And uh, Dr. Bill got a, uh, his, Dr. Bill's beeper went off and uh, he had to go cover some <laughs> medical emergency. So, unfortunately. He's had to rush to the ER. <laughs> to I, imagine, I imagine he's running down the corridor now and the camera's sweeping around him and he's saying stuff like, give me a central line, stat. I, I heard it was a feline rectal enemy or something like that is <laughs> what I, what I'm not sure what, yeah. I just picture, you know, like him him in the room and he's got the, the paddles and he's like, all right, clear. And they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, doctor. <laughs> <laughs> he's here for a hangnail. <laughs> Shock him anyway. <laughs> what do I care? Clear. <laughs> <laughs> this we, equipment costs money. We need to get some use out of it. <laughs> it's the machine that goes bing. That's the most expensive machine in the, uh, in the, in the whole hospital. <laughs> So tell the good folks what we're here for. We are here for our shameless, obligatory coattails writing episode of Electro. (laughs) Why, Electro's got a film coming out? He does. Excellent. It's called Amazing Spider-Man 2. Oh, he doesn't wear the costume then. (sighs) I wish they could come up with a way that they could wear costumes in the movies like what we're used to in the comics, and I know it just doesn't transfer to film, but I just wish they could do something a little closer to what we're used to. Yeah, I was hoping um, that somebody was going to bring this up, and my, my evidence for, yes, you can have him in the movie, and yes, you can have him in the costume, 
is, and I think Andy will back me up on this, at Universal Studios Orlando, Electro is one of the villains in that, and he's easily one of the most recognizable villains in it, and everybody loves that part of the of the film. So well, when, yeah. I would like to see that. When I was at Universal this summer with you, uh, around the fifth or sixth time we went through the Spider-Man ride. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Only six? I, I, I Actually, I think, in all honesty, I think we went through it four times. Uh, yeah, I agree. I, I didn't even think of it from that perspective. Well, I remember the one I specifically noticed, and, and we even posted on Facebook, was the Green Goblin looked awesome. The live Green Goblin who's out yeah. there meeting, meeting and greeting people. And, yeah. and I thought, why can't they do that in a movie? Could yep. not agree. Doctor Doom looks fantastic as well. Yes. And, and he yes. beats the crap out of you if you're not nice to him. Yeah. Yes. And the, the, the Captain America who's wandering around, his costume looks fantastic. His newly designed one. Yeah, it's funny. We we were there eight years ago, and we got I have pictures of the kids with the Captain America who was there then, and then we were there this year, and I have pictures of them with this Captain America, and this Captain America costume blows away the old one. Yeah, all mm. of the costumes do. They've done, they have done a really good job though of updating the costumes while still making them look like the the comic costumes. And I, I couldn't agree more. I think the Green Goblin looks fantastic. I think Doctor Doom looks fantastic, and they look fantastic in harsh daylight sun. So imagine how cool they would look under proper studio lighting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, See, that's... I think you know I don't have a problem when they, well, for the most part, I don't have a problem when they take like some obscure bad guy and give them the Hollywood makeover and and work them into the film. You know, I think Captain America Two is, is a great example of you know we have some lower tier bad guys in that that the average moviegoer goes you know who who is this guy you know and they just accept them the way that they're presented to us but when you've got a, a quintessential bad guy uh, of a hero from the comics that kind of makes that that transition into popular culture and you don't present them that way in the movies that that just bugs me and I would argue that Electro is one of the quintessential Spider-Man bad guys that people might not know his name, but they see him, his picture and, you know, they may not have read a comic in, you know, 20, 30 years. They'll more than likely go, oh, I, I remember that guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So well, they may have seen him in Universal at the ride or they may have seen exactly. him in the cartoons. Exactly. Yeah. That's yeah, don't like Batrock where only us know who Batrock is. Right, or Crossbones, yeah. Or Crossbones, yeah. Most of Spider-Man's villains, I would argue, have at least some small measure of pop culture resonance, even if only because of the 60s cartoon show used most of them. Now, would it it have been bad... Would it have been bad to have Batrock with the uh, waxed mustache? (laughs) Seriously, (laughs) I mean, would that have have stood out as, oh, that's, that's, you can't have that, that's not realistic? I mean, I understand you're not going to have him with the purple and orange jumpsuit thing, although you could have done that. They they came close. Yeah, Yeah, they came pretty close to getting his costume. Well, the headpiece was what, you know, what makes the Batrock look for me. And he didn't have that. But but there's no reason he couldn't have had the stash. No, (laughs) I eat the stash. That probably would have been cool. And they should have had a little bit more dialogue from him. Well, he was just a pre-credits bad guy, wasn't he, really? Yeah, he was yeah, the guy yeah. Deanna Jones is sorting out before the real mission starts. Which, He's the uh, exciting opening, really. The fact that it tied into the plot uh, at all was a surprise. Transferring this to, AS, to ASM2, I think that's what we should anticipate for the Rhino. Yeah, 
Well, I think they've pretty much said as much, haven't they? The Rhinos there to set up the Sinister Six. And and from the trailer, he looks pretty awesome, even as a mechanical. Not the only trailer I've seen was the one they played in front of Captain America, so I had no choice but to watch it. But it was only like a minute or so, and it was mostly Spider-Man swinging through New York, which did look fantastic. I mean, I wasn't—I was fifty-fifty on Amazing Spider-Man two because I didn't think much of Amazing Spider-Man, and my big bugbear with it was the costume, which I took an awful lot of heat about from people. Like, why do you care? I, I got your back, brother. I got your back. No, it doesn't. That costume in Amazing Spider-Man looked like arse. It really did. Yeah, it looked because, like a basketball. Yeah. yeah. If, if, if Raimi's movies, and even, I would argue, the 70s live-action TV show, if they proved anything, it's Spider-Man's costume works in live-action. You don't need to fiddle with it. You don't need to mess with it. You may want to make it with up-to-date material or whatever. And I think the thing I came away from with that trailer from Amazing Spider-Man 2 was the costume looks fantastic. Okay, I'm in. Yeah, that's yeah. Fair. As it's weird for me because uh, I, I went yesterday afternoon. I took my boys to see uh, uh, Captain America: The Winter Soldier. Now they hadn't seen it. This was my second time seeing it. They hadn't seen it. And before the movie, there's that trailer. I, I think it's the latest, maybe even the last trailer for uh, ASM Two. And we sat through it and everything. And then when it was over, Scotty leans over to me and says, uh, "What do you think?" And I just said, "Eh." And it's funny because I got a snicker and the same reaction from both of them. They they both were kind of like, yeah, they felt the same way. And it's funny because to me, it, it's not like the movie doesn't look like it might be exciting or whatever. The problem is, and I'm not sure where to pin it down, but it looks like a video game trailer to me. It looks like a like this would be a <laughs> kick-ass Spider-Man video game, but it doesn't look like a movie to me somehow. I don't know if it's just too CGI'd or what the problem is, but I, I just watched it and I'm like, eh. There you is know? that risk. I agree. There is, well, the reason I was laughing there, Scott, in the cinema watching Captain America, Michael leaned over to me and said exactly the same thing. He said, was that a trailer for the video game or for the film? <laughs> see so yeah we're we're not alone but hey no i'm serious i got your back on the on the thing with the costume because i mean that's that's been a deal breaker for me for uh for at least a couple of uh superhero films lately so yeah, there's a yeah i think of... it's a legitimate criticism and, and i'm tired of people acting like it's yeah. not a legitimate criticism it is i i completely have your back on that yeah, it's it's one of them there are certain characters from the comics who have so permeated the pop culture landscape you do not mess around with the costume and yep. spider-man's one of them and i and can... the only reason that it, it the only reason they changed it was to sell action figures and to desperately try and differentiate themselves from the raimi movies and trying to differentiate themselves from what raimi did is what hurt that first film Yep. Yeah, a lot of the uh, the deficiencies in that film were, you know, trying to like for example, they couldn't have J. Jonah Jameson in it because he was done so perfectly in the Raimi films. Yeah. You know, is and... he not in the first movie? Nope. Nope. He's not in the second one either. Apparently, there's no Daily Bugle stuff at all. Wow. I don't count. And and I I don't think I'm as militant about the costumes as you guys are, but I do agree with you. I I can't question the logic on it uh for example and i don't want to make this i don't want to let this go off on too far of a tangent but uh, you know i've made i've been vocal that i like man of steel 
I would have liked it more if he had the real costume. I hate that they changed the, the costume. I, 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 yeah. <laughs> All right, well, no, but, last but I do not like thing. the way they changed Superman's costume, and I, so I don't no. think you have a problem with that opinion, Scott. I, I <laughs> think the costume in that film is better than the current comics costume. I, I think that the costume in that film is too close to the current costume, comics costume, which I don't my like pro- either. My problem with the Man of Steel costume in the film, if you watch the behind-the-scenes stuff, the cape is a lot redder, and for some reason in the film they bled some of the colours out. And it, it doesn't stand out as well. It looks like the Burgundy cape Brandon Routh wore, and mm-hmm. that's why it doesn't work. As a bright red cape, it really stood out. I did like the way they CGI'd the cape as far as its motion, but the color should have been brighter, and, and this, the costume color should have been brighter, and he should, yeah. have, and he should have his shorts. Yeah. I have no because, problem with the shorts. I don't know why everybody has such a problem with the freaking shorts. No, I don't. And, and it was Ansler who pointed out to me, without the shorts, it's just one big block of blue. Yeah. There's nothing to break up the color scheme without the shorts. I like without the shorts. the shorts. Without the shorts, you have Ultraman. Yeah. That's my problem with it. Is that visually, to me, it's a cue that this is a bad guy. It's not, it's not my hero. But that's all, that's all I'm going to say on this because <laughs> I have taken so much grief over my my stance on that movie but, that but, that's all i'm gonna say but you know what i mean to to just put a nail in, the, in this, the, this conversation so we can move it on to something else uh you're dealing with two guys who liked the movie and both agree with you on it yeah so. i don't disagree with anything you've said and i've never i've never attacked you on Facebook for your opinion on man of steel because you're allowed to have that. I know this is a shock to some people that you are allowed to disagree with them and still be friends. <laughs> well, let's not take it too far. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, yeah, that's that's one of the things I keep trying to hammer home in the uh, Facebook conversations is I don't mind people disagreeing with me. I, I, what what I mind is when they act as if I'm not entitled to have my own opinion. That their opinion is the only one that counts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you know, and yeah. I would be a hypocrite if I treated it differently when you disagree with me. Right. So you know, I have no problem with the fact that you don't want to see that movie. I have no problem with the fact that you don't want to see Into Darkness or any of the Star Trek stuff. That's fine. That's you know, that's your choices. Uh, who am I to tell you what to do? Yeah, who are you to tell me what? Who to the do? hell are you? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait a minute, that's me. But that's, you know, that's, that's the thing is people say, you know, they, they treat it as if their opinion is fact. Right. <laughs> and you know what? The two terms have different definitions. I'm sorry. Well, I, I have seen an awful lot of, uh, I'm not even sure how to describe it. I've just seen a, a lot of people. I don't know if they're they're just coming around or if they've always held the opinion they're just being vocal about it or whatever. But man, with uh, with Cap Two just on fire the way that it is, I sure have seen a lot of people making unkind comparisons between Cap Two and the stuff that DC's been putting out in the past few years. That gives me hope in a in a weird sort of way. That gives me hope that uh, you know. Something will will change down the road because it, it's just so strange that the Marvel movies are, are are on fire the way that they are and and really nailing it in my opinion and the DC ones eh, for me just just kind of aren't but I'm hoping that that will change down the road but I tell you you know what exciting times we live in you know as comic book fans that there's so much stuff coming out now 
that you can pick and choose it. Cause I can remember, I'm sure you guys do as well. When the comic book film kind of came along, you went to see everything because they were kind of spread out and they were kind of sparse, even during a time when that a lot of people remember as kind of a glut of comic book movies in the nineties, it really wasn't compared to today. Not that today is necessarily a glut, but you do have a lot of stuff coming out to a point where you can kind of differentiate. So, you know, if, if, you know, underwear man comes out and it's, eh, it's not that good. It doesn't look like it interests you. That's okay. Wait six months or, or less and, you know, some other installment of some other franchise is going to come out that that may, you know, be your thing. I like that. I like having choices now to where I can decide, you know what, I just don't think I want to see that, you know, it, but I yeah. still get something. I, I like that. I think that's pretty cool. I mean, we've yeah. waited a long time for this to come around and I'm excited by it. Yeah, I mean, I can sit here and bitch about Amazing Spider-Man as much as I want to. I'd will. <laughs> but I, I remember the 70s live-action TV show was all we had. Yeah. Right. Right. But I, I I do think we have a glut, and not necessarily using glut as a pejorative term, but I think if you look, and I haven't compared any numbers, so this is just off the top of my head, but I think if you look at the films that are coming out right now, comic and superhero movies are probably the most dominant genre out there oh definitely and that has never ever been the case until now but i mean i'm, I'm saying every new if you compare all the new movies come out for the year that's probably the dominant genre yeah mm-hmm. well the thing that the thing that's bugging me about that is everyone's just sat there predicting doom and gloom it can't last it can't go on forever why are we not just enjoying it while it is happening mm-hmm. that's what i'm why doing is, why is everyone sat there going well guns of the galaxy may be crap it may be but you know what avengers 2 probably won't be you know so what? Let's t- I, I look at it this way. Was every single Western that ever came out, you know, great? No. Oh. But they were able to successfully spin that into its own genre that lasted for a hell of a long time. If Hollywood and, and these, in, you know, these comic companies are smart and play it right, comic book films, superhero films can become its own genre to a point where it's it's a legit subcategory of movies the same way that you know when you used to walk into like your your neighborhood video store westerns was its own section. I mean we're at that point now. And yeah, I, I'm with you. I'm I'm kind of tired of the whole doom and gloom thing. Every time the next comic book film's about to come along, it's like, well, you know, this could make or break Marvel. Con-. And it's like, no. If no. if Guardians comes out and tanks, so what? Avengers yeah. two is right behind it. You know. Well, I I think that fear comes from the fact that they are investing so much in every movie that the stakes are high. Uh, you know, they're, they're not making, they're not willing to make a small movie. They're making, they're trying to make a blockbuster with every movie. So when they do have one that fails, they're going to feel a hit. I think they've had enough successful ones that they can survive a hit now, or, See, you that, know, a, 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 a bomb now. That's <laughs> the exciting thing. I'm not sure. It's funny. Cause I know you and I, Paul talked about this not long ago. Um, I, I distinctly remember us doing a show on the subject and, and me saying something crazy to the effect of, you know, one bomb and it's all over. But at some point, and I felt, I legitimately felt that way at the time, but at some point, and I'm not sure where the, the, you know, the, the uh, 
defining line is. But at some point we crossed, or I'm talking for the Marvel Studios films, at some point we crossed a line to where I don't think that's the case anymore. I don't think that the future of Marvel Studios films rides on Guardians of the Galaxy. Now, it's not that small independent film that, that we were talking about before. You know, why don't they do street level? Remember us having this conversation? Absolutely. Yeah, I meant to email you in about that. Go on, finish, Scott, and then I'll say my bit. Galaxy of the Guardians is not that movie. I mean, it's no small budget movie, but at the same rate, the future of the whole thing does not ride on Guardians. If Guardians tanks, and I'm predicting that Guardians is going to do gangbusters, I'll just say it. But if it comes out and it underperforms, that's not the end of the ride. You know, we don't all get off and go, well, that was fun and it's all over now. No, it, it steamrolls ahead. And again, I don't know where that line is. Possibly Iron Man 3, because I think once we, you know, once we got past Avengers, I think that for a long time, people still saw Avengers as some sort of weird fluke. Like, wow, that just... Isn't that awesome that that worked? It shouldn't have, and I agree. Avengers shouldn't have worked, but it did. But we still were all feeling this kind of like, well, it was a fluke, you know. It could still all end tomorrow if the next movie sucks. And then Iron Man 3 comes out and does, you know, I mean, almost as much business as Avengers. And now we've got Cap 3, or excuse me, Cap 2, which is, you know, likewise doing gangbusters. Thor 2, I understand, did really well, you know. And I think so, that's I think that's the thing is they've they've shown now with all three of these movies Iron Man, Thor, and Captain America that their core heroes mm-hmm. are going to be successful the second time around. Exactly. So now, if the time when they go for this offshoot of Guardians of the Galaxy is unsuccessful, they're going to be able to sit back and say, "Well, we still have those core heroes that we know exactly. we can bank on." Exactly, and it might help shore each other up as well. So you you can have. You know, one of the one of your heroes can have a movie that eh, maybe doesn't do as well as, you know, the other two guys or other three guys if they start doing, you know, Hulk movies or whatever. But they all kind of shore each other up to at at the end of the day, you know, the, the pillars still stand and the whole thing's still standing. And you can at that point, you can afford you know, one or two underperformers because as a whole franchise, the whole thing stands, you know, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it makes, well, there's a couple of things though. One, I'm just waiting for some website to announce that Marvel has failed because one of their movies only opens at number two instead of number one, because we Mm -hmm. now live in a world where that apparently isn't successful to open at number two. Mm. But the other thing is you've talked on the show before about why don't they make a couple of $40 million, $50 million low budget movies. I was listening to the five BBC five live movie show and they were talking about that for studios, the highest risk movie is the 40, $50 million range. If you make a a low budget, micro budgeted movie, five, $10 million, you're going to make your money back easily. If you make an expensive movie, the sheer amount of marketing weight behind that will ensure you make your money back. But at $40, $50 million budget, there's not got the marketing behind it to to push it. But it's too much money to make enough of a profit to justify the risk. So I think Marvel, being their own studio, is in this position where a $40, $50 million budget at the moment just isn't in their range. They could afford to make big movies because they'll make that back. And they could possibly afford a low-budget Punisher movie, like very low-budget. But when you do $40, $50 million... 
push you're struggling that to get your money back. Netf- I'm sorry, Andy. No, no, no. You're, um, but that's where I was just going to go next, Paul. The Netflix deal, I think, is the $40, $50 million mid-range movie. That's right. what I think with the Netflix stuff. Yeah, I think they, they changed the paradigm by instead of making the $40 million movie, they came up with something else. Yeah, because let's be honest, Luke Cage doesn't need a $150 million movie, but mm-hmm. he probably does need a little bit to justify the expense of it. But the Netflix deal, the money they will make from Netflix will probably cover the budget. That's still on the table and still going forward? Yeah, I believe uh, yep. uh, we're, a, we're a year away from it, I think. Yeah, they're, they're still looking at um, the guy from Dexter, Michael C. Hall, has been rumoured as Matt Murdock, which I think, if it's true, is just an astonishingly magnificent piece of casting. If they can get him, not only does he have gravitas as an actor and he carries a, a certain rep with him because of Dexter and Six Feet Under, he actually looks like Matt Murdock. He's walked off the comics page. If he's real, I'm so behind that Daredevil movie. Well, whoever's, whoever's been in charge of casting for Marvel... Marvel Studios has done an incredible job. Oh, yeah. yeah. Unlike people on these other movies, like, I mean, uh, I don't want to go off on a rant on this, but let's, uh, the new Fantastic Four movie. Uh, you, let's hire no. a, a director who's going to hire all his friends to be in the movie. Yeah. You know, instead of trying to find the right actors for the roles. We'll, we'll get a big brawl, uh, brawny Reed Richards. We'll get a little wimpy Ben Grimm. We'll get a black Johnny Storm and a white Sue Storm. It, it makes no sense to me. I just, I've got so little interest in that film, I can't even muster up the enthusiasm to discuss it. Why don't, why don't we see if we can go get another preppy to play Dr. Doom again? <laughs> we may as well get the other guy from Nip Tuck. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's, and, and, you know, I, I, I go crazy when people start saying, you know, oh, it's racist to criticize that they have a black Johnny Storm. It's not racist. It's, I don't really care. If they had a black Johnny Storm and a black Sue Storm, exactly my point i'd have been behind it because that would have shown that they were being brave and they were making a social comment but they didn't do that you know why because it would have been an interracial marriage somewhere down the line and fox didn't want to do that so basically what they've said is oh well we're being brave and edgy but we're only going to be so brave and edgy and i find that insulting but my problem with the whole casting thing is it's not him specifically i have a problem with it's all of them yeah it, it well i i don't know her the actress that they have to play Sue Storm. So I can't say I have a problem with her, but from what I saw of all the three others, I have a problem with it. And what I always say about the racial changing in, in the uh, casting is if there's nothing about the character that says they need to be white, they need to be black, they need to be Latin, I don't care if they change it. But Nick if there's Fury. something true to the character that that has to do with that, you know, that background, then don't change it. I didn't care that they had a black Perry White. I didn't care that they had a black kingpin. I didn't care that no. they have a black Nick Fury. It's yep. all fine with me. Yep. And, and and I'm okay. Like I said, I would be okay with a black Johnny Storm if you had a black Sue Storm. Exactly. But they're brother and sister. They grew up together as brother and sister. I don't want to change the dynamic to make him adopted or to make him a stepchild or anything like that. I don't think that's true to the character. No, it's not. It's just... I've got no. I can't. Sorry, I can't even muster up the enthusiasm to argue about it. I agree with everything you said. It looks like it's going to be a train wreck, and I don't care. The problem is, I do care, and I probably will at some point see it, even if I don't invest my box Dude, office dollars. Don't. To it. Yeah, I was just going to say. Yeah, don't. That's that's. Yeah, I didn't want to speak on on that movie specifically, but bottom line for me is, 
and I, and I put this call out for everybody. I've been putting this call out for a long time. If if these things come out like this and and you're not interested or, or you don't, you know, you're not behind what they're doing, the the number one best thing that you can do is to withhold your dollars. Now, if you want to see it out of pure curiosity, you know, that's fine. You know, but but find a way to do it to where the money doesn't make it to the hands of the people that are putting crap like this out. That that's my thing. Is because when you do that, you are telling them, I approve of what you've done because you're giving them money to produce something that you don't like. So don't do that. Yeah, that is the that. number one reason why I haven't seen some of the movies that you mentioned. Because at the end of the day, I don't want money going to the hands of people that are producing things I'm not happy about. Mm. Period. I'm not going watching Days of Future Past. I've got no interest. I'm pretty sure Fox isn't squirming over the fact that I'm not going seeing it. But well, I'm, I'm not curious why it. why you feel that way because I'm pretty jazzed about that movie. I'm curious why you're not. Um, I don't think Fox is in the X Men business. I think Fox are in the Wolverine business. And that, um, that is one I of my criticisms. Yeah, I was so interested in First Class. First Class was magnificent from mm-hmm. start to finish. And you know why it was magnificent? It's an X Men film. Right. They brought in two people who obviously didn't know the company line that we're in the Wolverine business, and they inadvertently made an X-Men movie. (laughs) And then they've gone to do the sequel, and they've brought Brian Singer back, and he's instantly gone, let's bring back Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart and, oh, Hugh Jackman, and let's just change the whole goddamn story of Days of Future Past, one of the single best comic book stories ever written. And I'm not a huge X-Men fan, and let's just use the name and, and fuck everything else up. And, and, and I'm, I'm just not interested in seeing it. I'm not interested in seeing that version of Days of Future Past. I want to see the one that was in the comic, the one that has become iconic to comic book readers. I want to see a legitimate representation of a comic book story on film for the first time ever, and that's not what they're giving me. And the minute Brian Singer was announced as coming back, my interest in Days of Future Past went from 10 to 2. And everything since then has plummeted into minus figures. And I got angry then, didn't I? Sorry about that. That's okay. But the Wolverine aspect of it just confuses the heck out of me. Because he's the one character who... His his character tells you, you know, he doesn't age. So there's no reason you can't have Hugh Jackman in the present with the X-Men. And in the past with the X-Men. And in the future with the X-Men. And he's gonna, he could be all over the freaking movie. He doesn't have to be the time traveler. No. The thing that's annoying me about that, they've got Ellen Page... As Kitty Pride, she is arguably, up there with Emma Stone, I think, as one of the preeminent actresses currently working. She is phenomenally talented, exceptionally charismatic. She could carry an X-Men movie in the way McAvoy and Fassbender carried First Class. You don't need McKellen and Stewart anymore. And they've gone, oh no, well, Hugh Jackman's the draw, let's give it all to him. And... Don't get me wrong, I'm not blaming Hugh Jackman for this. Someone offered me a big role in a multi-million dollar movie, I'd take it. But it's just, once again, it's Brian Singer's pissing all over what he professes to love. And I do not, for any moment, believe he loves X-Men comics. I don't think that at all. In the same way, I don't think he loves Superman comics. He may love that first movie that Richard Donner did, but he doesn't love the comics. Yeah. I don't disagree with anything you say, but I loved first class so much 
that the prospect of seeing Fassbender and McAvoy and 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 I I like Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. I'm not going to try and pretend I don't. I don't think he should be the absolute focus of the X Men movie. He's got his own line of movies to to be Wolverine yeah. in. They have at least uh, finally acknowledged we're in the Wolverine business by making Wolverine movies. You want to make another Wolverine movie? Make Wolverine three. Yeah, and that's that's I think that's exactly right. He should be he should be an integral part of future past, but he should not be the focus of it. It should be an ensemble piece. He should be a cameo like he was in in uh, first class. He should show up, get killed by a sentinel. That would be so cool if they recreated. Yeah, that would that be scene. that would be fantastic. If they recreated that scene like right out of the comic panels, that would be yep. so cool. You know they won't. No, I know, I know they won't. That's why I'm not paying to see it. But I'm not dissing on people that do want to go and see it, Scott. If you want to go, go <laughs> feel like, feel free. Like I said, but, Fox losing sleep over me not seeing it. Not not only am I going to see it, but when we saw uh, Captain America, they had the trailer for it. And my daughter looked over at me and said, we're going to go see that the first day, right? So she see, I, she also likes she she likes the uh, the guy who plays Beast because he was in that, uh, that, that uh, zombie rom-com. Uh, warm bodies. Oh yeah. And so you know he's dreamy. <laughs> yes, yes. He was in Skins as well, wasn't he? Yeah, well, he was in Skins. I don't know. Anyway, we're not talking about Electro. <laughs> yes, Electro. Let's let's talk about let's talk about Electro a little bit. Thank you, Andy. <laughs> Is this a pre-credit sequence that we've just done for forty-five minutes? Uh, well, no, because I already did the intro. We may not have any pre-credit sequence at all. <laughs> sorry i feel like i took us off topic That's... yeah because because you know what on back to the bins we are usually laser focused <laughs> you normally are when scott's on it i'm gonna i'm gonna predict right now that that ends up being the most popular part of the entire episode is this <laughs> quote-unquote preamble talk here because uh i think i think that was some good stuff but no i i just want to chime in real quick before we uh, get back to uh electro proper that uh no, I'm I'm down for the new X Men movie for the same reasons that uh, that Paul s- stated. I don't give a rat's ass about you know Patrick Stewart or, or Ian McKellen or Wolverine being back. I want to go see the guys from First Class again. That movie generated so much goodwill with me. I loved that movie, so I'm excited to go see more of that. The rest of the stuff that's in there, I hope doesn't take up too much of the film or distract too much from the first class stuff that that is actually that's why i'm going to see that movie you know what this is effectively this episode which will be uh posted on may 3rd becomes the preamble to our back to the bins x-men month ah that works have we announced that yet no go ahead and announce it now well excuse me for the next Four weeks after this episode, we will be doing X-Men-focused Back to the Bins episodes, or for the remainder of May. I don't know if that's four or three months, because this is going up the first week in May. Um, I'm not sure exactly which series we're going to cover, but we're going to cover a different series each week for the month of May. And we have to end it at May, because we have big plans for June. Yes. And also, that ties in with... uh, (laughs) You know the the X Men thing for Back to the Bins ties in with what uh, what Two True Freaks proper is going to be doing for the month of May, and so and and it's only fair, that as well. it's, it's only fair to say Back to the Bins is not 
the tail wagging the dog here. Back to the bins is being led along. <laughs> but back to Electro for now. We got one more one more non-X-Men week before we really dive into May. And uh, we've spent enough of our our shameless obligatory coattails riding <laughs> episode discussing X-Men. <clears throat> so the main villain in ASM2 is going to be Electro. Now, for the record, Scott, you did not see ASM, correct? No. And Andy, you saw it and were somewhat lukewarm on it? Yeah, it didn't suck. I mean, I think they botched the origin, but I think Raimi's movie botched the origin. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the strongest point of it was Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone. And that's interesting because I feel, and Scott, you and I were discussing this recently, between that movie and the Raimi movies... I don't feel I've seen the Peter Parker I know from the comics on the screen yet. No, I think that's a valid point. Um, yeah, I agree with that. I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I do and I don't. See, I'm going to... I hesitate to give my opinion on this because I know I'm going to... I'm just opening myself up to take so much shit for saying this. But <laughs> and I love that you do that. See, <laughs> I... Uh, I'll just be honest. I'm a I'm a big fan of Spider-Man three, the third film. I really liked that, and in a lot of ways, I thought that the Peter Parker in that uh, was very close to the Peter Parker of the era that the Venom stories were set in in the comics. Because I'm more familiar with that particular iteration of Peter Parker. That was the Peter Parker that existed as I was getting into comics. You know, a twenty-something young man who was kind of you know, doing the struggles that Peter Parker, you know, goes through, you know, with with girls and all that. You know, he wasn't the high school student Peter Parker, which I'm just sick to death of. You know, he was, you know, I, again, this 20 something guy trying to get his shit together and get his life together and, you know, hold down a steady girlfriend and all that sort of thing. So I liked that presentation. Um, I mean, you know, was uh, was what's his name? You know, the greatest Peter Parker? Totally no, was. but I. Yeah, uh, McGuire, but the, you know, the way he was presented in the movie, I I thought felt a little more to me like the Peter Parker I was expecting to see. This Garfield kid totally does not. He looks like some hipster douchebag that every time I see footage with him, I'm like, how the hell did he get? He doesn't look like him. He doesn't act like him. He he looks like he should be in like young Elvis in love or something. What is with that friggin' hair? You know, I just don't get it. I you know, so you know, nothing against the kid personally, but I just don't get it. I he just doesn't look like Spider-Man to me. So Well we we're that was talking now we're talking a little bit of writing versus casting because I don't disagree with you that as written uh, Spider-Man 3 did kind of have a Peter Parkerish feel to the character. I'm more along the lines of thinking that Tobey Maguire was the wrong actor for the part. He, awesome. ne- he didn't embody that character to me. He didn't awesome. have, I, I'm sorry. I, I didn't think he had the look. I didn't think he had the voice. I didn't think he had the physical presence the way I expect it to be. I don't know. I, I, and I'm not sure, you know, I, I think there's a knee-jerk reaction people have. Well, who would be better? You know what? I'm not a Hollywood casting agent. I don't know who I yeah, would Yeah, it's not our job to find somebody to play these roles. 
that's the point. I, when I said, I don't think Tobey Maguire is a great Peter Parker, and people said, well, it would have been better. It's, it's not my job to cast these people. Get Marvel Studios in to cast it. I'm sure they'd have done a better job. And I'm fine with the idea with all of these roles. When I do have a problem with who's cast, and for the Marvel Studios, I can't think of anybody off the top of my head that I do have a problem with. Uh, but when I do have a problem with it, and they say, well, who would you cast? You know what? Have an open casting call and put an unknown in the role. It doesn't have to be a name actor. Yeah. Well, arguably they did that with Andrew Garfield. Yeah. See, I, I disagree with Scott about... You know, I don't disagree about the look. I'll go with that. But I disagree with how he played it. He played it as it was written, and he did a pretty damn good job of it. And there was enough in it that made me think he could be a good Peter Parker if the sequel is better written than the original one was. And is the way he works with Emma Stone as Gwen, who, let's be honest, isn't Gwen. She's Murray Jane in every aspect. Mm-hmm. She's just Gwen in the film. The except that she has a family. That's the only Gwen except aspect Except that she has a family. Yeah, it's the, it's the only Gwen thing. And the, then Captain Stacey's in it. And it's interesting, isn't it, that to make Gwen interesting, they've turned her into Murray Jane. I thought that was quite an interesting thing. But that the, is interesting because wasn't that one of the criticisms of the Raimi films is that it had Mary Jane in it, but she was obviously Gwen in a whole lot of the, and they've, especially they've the first the movie where now. they drop her off the bridge. Yeah, so that's yeah. that's very strange. It's quite interesting. It's those two that made me think Amazing Spider-Man Two could be good. And there are certain there is. I think the Ra- the first Raimi film is the best Spider-Man film we've had so far. There are little the first bits one. Of, yeah, I love the first one. I think the first one's fantastic. I really do. I think Sam Raimi nailed the first one. I don't care about Dun Goblin's costume. I care about the fact that Willem Dafoe was fun in it. And I'd, I'd never really buy James Franco as Harry. James Franco's my sticking point in the first three movies. He's far too handsome to be Harry. I always, you look at the comics, you kind of get the, the other way around. You get by the time Ramita's drawing and Peter's the handsome one who's coming out of his shell a bit. And even in the Ditko issues, Peter was capable of standing up for himself. And I never bought that Maguire could have done that. They always played him much more as the nerdy geek thing. But whereas later on, you got a Peter Parker who was capable of standing up to Flash Thompson. Remember in that boxing issue, he, he lays him out. He punches Flash Thompson in the face and lays him out in front of the school. He doesn't give a damn about his secret identity at that point. And I never bought Maguire could play that. I buy that Andrew Garfield could play that. But we don't seem to be getting a Flash Thompson or a high school life. It's all focused on Peter and Gwen, which I think is the problem with the new ones. Well, for for everything that we're saying, I think we all agree. And I think, you know, to, to just cut it down to its barest bones, like Scott said, the, in in the Raimi ones, Peter Parker was written more like Peter Parker. And I think we're kind of agreeing Tobey Maguire wasn't necessarily the best choice to portray it. Mm. And in the ASM movies... Not that Garfield was bad, but he wasn't written... He was written too angsty. Yeah. He was his ultimate Spider-Man in Amazing Spider-Man, which I think may be one of the reasons it turns me off. I'm not interested in Bendis' Spider-Man. I want Stan Lee and Steve Ditko and John Romita's Spider-Man. I want that screen. I don't want Bendis's. And I think the problem with Amazing Spider-Man was it was too focused on being Bendis' Spider-Man rather than the original. And I think from what I've been reading about the second one, they seem to have gone the other way a bit now. They seem to embrace the older stuff a bit, but we haven't seen it yet, so we don't know. But that's what I want on screen. And just as a final thought for me, I, I do I disagree with you. I can't stand the goblin costume. I think it's horrible. No, that's for I don't like it. Don't get me wrong. 
I don't think it's magnificent, but I can live with it in the same way I can live with a Lex Luthor that has her and is only interested in a land deal. I can live with it because the the actor is good and the film that he is in is good. Yeah, you know, overall. you just helped me, Andy. You just helped me hit on something to why I, I never occurred to me before. Why I think. Spider-Man, the first one, doesn't work for me and why I wasn't really interested in seeing Amazing Spider-Man, the first one, you know, beyond the the costume and everything, but why I really enjoyed Spider-Man 2 and especially 3. Because Spider-Man, the origin story, to me, is firmly entrenched in the 1960s. There's something about that story that when I when I read it or when I've seen it like in the in the animated version, it's it's a product of its time. And it's why I've I've long held the opinion that I would really love to see a period piece Spider-Man origin film. Mm. And when All it's not. Book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Same thing. And when they don't do that. You know, no matter how close they might get, I think I'm always going to be ultimately kind of disappointed in a Spider-Man origin film if it's not set in that time because it just, in my mind, that's where it belongs. Yet with Spider-Man 2 and especially the third one, so many of the, the elements that they were using for telling both of those stories were elements of a much later iteration of Spider-Man. Like the third one, for example, again, you know, with using Venom... And a lot of the elements of that story was more from the 80s version of Spider-Man. In a lot of ways, I think the third film plays like an 80s movie, which I think is one of the reasons that it gets the criticisms that it does, because a lot of people don't particularly have fond memories or or even any... uh, touchstone with with 80s films other than seeing them as you know hokey and cheesy or whatever but it's those elements that i like about that particular movie so that one works for me more on a level because it feels 80s whereas the first movie doesn't work for me because it doesn't it remotely feel like the 60s Mm. i don't know if that makes any sense but I think if you no, want no. if you want a '60s feel Spider-Man origin, you go to Spider-Man '66 cartoon, and that is so firmly in the '60s with oh, the yes. Ralph Bakshi uh, surreal backgrounds and the music and everything. It just it just screams '60s to you. I love yeah. that stuff. Love no, I'd see my problem with Spider-Man Three is the Sandman, not the Venom stuff. I, he's brilliant. He's magnificently cast. I didn't buy all that backstory about him being a decent guy. Yeah. What's wrong with just having a villain who's a bastard? Right. Yeah, I, he was he was wonderfully cast, and he the special effects on him were tremendous. Yeah, and his look his look was straight off the comics. Yes, but I, I well that that goes into I guess you know Scott what Scott's saying about the eighties because in the eighties they had that time or actually late eighties early nineties you had the time where Sandman kind of became a good guy for a while right he was an avenger wasn't he uh yeah I, yeah I, I think he was like an avenger reserve i don't think he was actually and then he worked with silver sable for a bit didn't he yeah yep and then eventually he just turned bad again but uh something they... that confuses me greatly though is that I, i've never quite understood why they decided to reboot the franchise anyway but doesn't it kind of feel like you know you went through all this trouble to to reboot and recast and everything else yet 
aren't they kind of making a lot of the same mistakes that the original three films are now greatly criticized for? Because I know that the, the most common complaint that I've heard about the third film is, oh, it was just too convoluted. There were too many bad guys. There was too much this and too much that. You know, I've been reading reviews of ASM 2, and it sounds like a lot of the same criticisms. It's got too many villains. It's got too much stuff going on. So have they not learned anything? Uh, it it well, seems it, really strange to It me. seems like they're really anxious to put together their Sinister Six. Yeah, that's what it reeks of. To, that's one of the reasons I'm still a bit 50-50 on it. It smacks to me of they want a piece of what Marvel's got, and they're rushing into it instead of doing it over a number of movies like Marvel did, they've gone straight right. into Amazing Spider-Man 2 saying, right, we want a Sinister Six movie, and we want a Spider-Man 3 movie, and we want a Venom movie. Let's set all of that up in this film. I'm not saying that's what it's going to be, because obviously I've not seen it yet, but it does sound like that's what they're rushing into in the same way that Fox are rushing into Fantastic Four 2, if it ever gets made, is going to be a Fantastic Four versus X-Men which I think is a terrible idea because irrespective of what I think of Brian Singer's X-Men movies, the tone of those films does not suit the FF. So that's another reason I'm not interested in the FF. I think they're going to match the tone of that movie to Singer's X-Men movies, and that's just not the Fantastic Four. So I think both of those studios are rushing into this what Marvel have done over a, a period of time, and they're rushing it. And if, if anything, it's Fox and Sony that are going to make the superhero bubble burst, not Marvel or Warner Brothers. Well, I mean, they can hardly be accused of being the only ones because, you know, look at, uh, you know, the, the so-called sequel to uh, Man of Steel sounds like it's going to have everybody and the kitchen sink except Superman in the actual Superman sequels. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's more and more, that's just sound like a stealth Justice League setup, isn't it? Yeah, and that's the problem. And more and more, it sounds like a movie that I'm going to stay miles and miles <laughs> away from. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> and you know that that's the that's the you know it's both funny, but it's also tragically sad. That you know, if somebody had to come to me, you know, 20 years ago as a kid and said, "Hey, you know, one day." You know, there's going to be all these Marvel movies that are out there. You know, you're going to have an Iron Man movie and a Captain America movie and a Thor movie and all these Marvel movies out there. And you're going to love that shit. But then they're going to be doing this Batman versus Superman movie. And you're going to be like, I could care less. I'd have been like, you are out of your what are you talking about? And that's exactly where we are today. I could not care less about that movie. I, I just everything that sounds every rumor that comes out about it. I'm like, you know. No, thanks. It's just a weird place. To, it's such a weird place to be in. But yeah. loving, loving the Marvel stuff. So the focus on this one is Electra. <laughs> <laughs> You're so professional. <laughs> That's what they tell me uh, everywhere except for where I work. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Electro is, is an interesting choice to me because I think he's a very recognizable villain but he's not going to be the first one off anybody's list that they're going to come to so they are doing something a little different that they went with the lizard in the first movie and they're going with electro in this movie and i do see those as interesting choices and i'm just not sure if they're organic or if it's again let's get our sinister six put together yeah, well, the, in the first one, the lizard, that kind of felt organic because they established that Gwen was in turn in 
at this science fellowship thing and Kurt Connors was working there. And I can kind of live with that. I mean, I prefer that he's off on his own in Florida or whatever, but I can understand them wanting to bring the elements together. So that felt a little bit more organic. The post-credit sequence between him and, was it Norman Osborn, I think? They never tell you it was. Yeah, they never tell you it was, but there's a post-credit sequence that felt like they desperately wanted a Nick Fury moment, but didn't have it. So they went with, I I don't know if Reese Siffens is even in this second one. So the Electro stuff, I like that they're concentrating on the original bad guys. I like that they're concentrating on Electro and the Rhino. These are two old-school bad guys. One's a Ditko, one's a Ramita, but they're still old-school bad guys. And it, I don't know, until I see the story, I can't tell you whether it's it's organic or not. But mm-hmm. I do like that, irrespective of the fact that the the original reason for rebooting was so they could do the Ultimate Universe, they seem to have gone back to using the Lee Ditko, Lee Ramita baddies, even if they're not using the look. I mean, I don't know what the Rhino looks like. Does he look like the guy in the comics? Well, the shot I saw of it, he looks like basically a, at least, I, and I've only seen like a, a you know a fleeting glimpse, but right. it looks like he is a pretty well rendered mechanical version you know mechanical suit wearing rhino right which you know they are trying to translate it to the real world so i could accept that as a more uh realistic version than a guy with you know the suit kind of glued to his body and whatever but it's it's it it looks like it could be good Uh, you know and and giamatti is a good actor so And, well, and, and it sounds it sounds like the Rhino is what we were asking for in the Raimi ones. I mean, we can't complain when they actually do give us what we want. One of the things we were asking for in the Raimi films, well, why did Spider-Man 2 only concentrate on Dr. Octopus? Why wasn't there a pre-credit sequence where he just took down the Shocker or something like that? You know, put a, a, a lesser bad guy in and let's see Spider-Man take him out pretty quickly. Yep. So I've been saying that things, since the second yeah, movie, yeah. People were yeah. asking for that in the second and third Raimi movies, bringing a couple of lower, lesser characters so we can see them, but not have them be part of the plot. And it sounds the, like they've done that the, with the Rhino. I think one of the things that set that up was the damn video games that they put out that were tied in with those Spider-Man movies, the original trilogy. Every one of the video games did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they would give you the lesser tier villains, and then you'd have like the 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 boss of the movie was the boss of the game, and I, I liked that dynamic because wasn't the Shocker one of the ones that you fought in? Yes, yeah, in one of those. Games, the Shocker games, was in, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. What a love that shit. Yeah, because he yeah. just like robbed a bank and you had to chase him down. That would that's a great opening sequence for a film. Yeah, yeah, I've been I've been saying all along, and I'm not unique in this that that they should go with the James Bond like opening sequences. Hmm. And and it looks like they're doing. It. I mean, they did it to some extent with with Batroc and Captain America. Oh yeah. And and now they, you know, it looks like they're doing it with the Rhino here. So I'm I'm happy. And to, to a see lesser extent, Thor two did that as well. Yeah, we came in at the tail end of of his war with the nine realms, didn't we? Oh yeah, yeah. You know what? I I didn't even think of it that way. But yeah, you're right. And we got to see the rock monster from Saturn. Yeah. Right? Or the rock man from Saturn, or whatever you want to call him. Right. So yeah, that's that is true. Good point. And oh, just one more thought, final thought on uh, Captain America before we go on to our books. But uh, <laughs> I, I heard this somewhere else. I can't claim that this is an original observation on my part. Uh, I heard it from our friends over at uh, the uh, HHWLOD uh, network, and uh, I think uh, I think Jim Dietz is the one who said it. Uh, but Captain America, watching that, it put a whole new uh, slant on on Iron Man two, yep. 
looking back on it and 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 looking. I said that. I said that in in on our review of Captain America. They may have said it as well. I'm not taking away from Jim. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, I heard it from them. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, there's no worries. We are we're allowed to have the same thoughts. <laughs> what, 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 what's the thought here? I I didn't I didn't hear the whole thing. Since I'm stealing having, your thought, Andy, go ahead. No, no, go on. It's just it's having Gary Shandlin in Captain America the Winter Soldier sheds new light on what he was doing in Iron Man 2 and it makes you realise that if Marvel have had this plan they aren't just setting up the Avengers they've been setting up plot lines throughout the whole of the first generation of movies that they're now going to start paying off that we didn't even know they were doing at the time and if that's the case then you know they're doing a magnificent job well, I know that between those elements of Cap 2 and uh, I don't know if you guys have seen the, uh, I don't know what they're calling them, the mini movie or whatever you call it, that's on the uh, Thor 2 Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Hail to the King. Hail to the, Hail king. To the king, yeah. Um, I, I like that it's giving some much needed love and some retroactive uh, greater appreciation to Iron Man two, because I still think that Iron Man two is the, uh, you know, the, the least appreciated of the Avengers lead up movies. I, I still say there's a hell of a lot of world building in that movie. uh, A lot of which just doesn't seem to be fully appreciated or, or as appreciated as I think it should be. I think that's a fantastic movie. It's nice to see them picking up, uh, some plot threads from that and, and working them into these later films. I like that a lot. They, they also talk about in uh, in Cap, they mention about how basically uh, Tony Star- Howard Stark was uh, killed off. Yep. And that kind of ties in with Iron Man 2 with him hiding that element for Tony to find because he didn't want exactly. people getting it and everything. And, and, and like Andy said, if this is all planned out, it's such a, a wonderful, intricate, web that they have going and it's it's done so well because they tie into each other very very well but they're also totally independent at the same time there's no reason you have to have seen the other ones in order to enjoy any one of these movies and yet when you watch them together there's just such a wonderful tapestry going on uh that it's it's just great yeah i i honestly think if this is true then I think Iron Man 2 will be reappraised in the future and people will be a lot kinder to it. Because like Scott, I thought Iron Man 2 was perfectly enjoyable. As mm-hmm. as did I. I think the three of us are in the minority, though. <laughs> oh, well, I'm sure we'll get over it. <laughs> and, and I think we, 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 we've been there before, so <laughs> nothing new there. I'll live. So why don't we take a one-minute break here and then we'll go in and do our books. Cool. I am the co-creator of Spider-Man. I dreamed up the idea of these characters originally, and I wrote the first stories. I think Peter is probably the most empathetic fictional character around in comics anyway. I thought I would make a hero who was a teenager by making his life less than perfect. It gave a lot of readers a chance to relate to him. And I always wanted him to be very smart. He was kind of a nerd, 
uh, before he became Spider-Man, but he was a smart nerd. And go! Well, the scene that I shot, I think, <clears throat> is one of the cleverest scenes I have ever seen in an action movie. To me, playing these cameos is the most fun you can have without laughing. <laughs> I love doing them. I cannot tell you how many people I meet today, these days, fans, who come over to me and say, Stan, I am so grateful for those stories of Peter Parker. I wasn't trying to write the story so it would be therapy for people, but I, I'm really glad to hear that. Hey, Michael. Hey, Dad. We need to record another new trailer. Another one? Yes. You know that we read comics and then talk about comics because as we've established, talking about comics you've not read is just dumb. Yeah, and you make me do it every Thursday. Well, we've moved. Have we? Yes, we have outgrown our old location. I don't feel like I've moved. And we have I've now grown. moved to twotruefreaks.com. What was that again? Twotruefreaks.com. A Kids Comics, still every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com. All right, so uh, we got our three books. Do we want to go chronological or do we want to do something else? No, chronological I... works for me. Chronological. All right, well, then that gives me the lead in, and I did not prepare a synopsis. I'm going oh. off the cuff. Old school, baby. Oh, no. Mine's written longhand. That's, that's what I've been doing lately, longhand, but I, just, I was busy yesterday, and I woke up very, very late this morning. I wasn't up till almost 6.30, so I didn't get a chance to do it. Excuses. Nothing but excuses around here, I swear. <laughs> so, as, as I indicated earlier, we've all picked issues with Electro in them. Imagine that. And su <laughs> surprisingly, and I thought we might escape this, and Dr. Bill would have taken us all. No, actually, Dr. Bill would have fallen into line also. Uh, I thought we might have one issue somewhere that somebody would have gone with that did not have Spider-Man in it. And I almost, I almost went for Daredevil Annual Number One. I thought about going for a Daredevil issue, but uh, what I did was I looked, uh, I looked at Electro's appearances, and I picked Marvel Team Up Number Fifty Six, which is from April of nineteen seventy-seven. It has a thirty-cent cover price, and it features Spider-Man and Daredevil. Uh, the cover of it is by John Romita Sr. and Frank Giacoya, and it shows Electro with his back to us. Uh, and Spider-Man and Daredevil are on either side swinging towards him, and he's kind of winging lightning bolts at them, but it doesn't even look like he's really trying to hit them. And his thought balloon says, that's it, heroes, swing closer into my trap. And then we're told Electro is only the first half of Double Danger at the Daily Bugle, which is the title of our issue. And it's written by Bill Mantlo. The art is by Sal Buscema and Dave Hunt. Uh, which makes me think of Mike Hunt, but that's besides <laughs> the point. Uh, oh, to it. The letters are by Joe Rosen. The color is by Dave Hunt, and it is edited by Archie Goodwin. The title is, as I said, the same uh, as the cover, Double Danger at the Daily Bugle. And if you were wondering who his secret partner was, you don't have to wait for long because the splash page so shows Blizzard uh, having just frozen a daily bugle truck and we see uh, a, a limp arm a limp frozen arm sticking out of the door and daredevil is in the background swinging towards him and 
uh, under a street light, and he's saying how his ultra-sharp tactile awareness alerted him to a temperature change coming from the alley all the way up here. Uh, I don't know that you need ultra-sharp tactile awareness to feel cold. Uh, uh, but... I don't think Daredevil even has that power, to be honest <laughs> with you. <laughs> but whatever the case may be, he, he's aware that something is going on. So he swings down and, and basically uh, gets Blizzard from behind with a kick. And Blizzard turns around and show, throws some ice darts at him. And they battle it out. But uh, Blizzard basically puts some ice underneath him and has him slide towards a fire hydrant, which gets brittle from the cold. And when Daredevil hits it, he uh, it, it shatters and Blizzard makes his escape. And then Daredevil reads the daily news uh, excuse me the daily bugle with his fingertips through his gloves because they're so sensitive which I find also to be a little kind of strange because if even if you had you know big bold letters that you could feel with your fingertips I would have a hard time reading that way but Daredevil manages it we cut to Peter Parker going into the daily bugle because it's payday and he had received a phone call from uh, Glory Grant telling him not to come down but it's payday so he came anyway and when he gets there, there's basically a bunch of uh, goons, you know, different type of gangsters uh, who've kind of taken over the place. And they send Peter off to somewhere to basically cool his heels, uh, but don't bother to follow him. And uh, he, he kind of is able to sneak a peek on what's going on in J. Jonah Jameson's office, where uh, Jonah's being kind of held in check and uh, Electro is behind the desk with his feet up on the desk, so you know he has no respect for the institution. And Blizzard is standing in the background with his arms folded, and we learn that basically they're blackmailing the Daily, Daily Bugle for money. Uh, they also bring in the editor from the Daily Globe, uh, who is, uh, what's his name, uh, Bushkin. Uh, Bushkin. And him and, him and Jonah kind of argue with each other, and Electro has to calm them down. And he basically says, you know, he, he calls Jonah on having sent out the paper that morning with a headline that says, Help is on the way, Black says, but mail strike continues. And there is no mail strike. And basically, uh, the message there's he was no sending... There's no Black either. There's no, and there's no Black either. Yes, that's correct. That's not a, uh, an existing person. And, and what, what it is is he... The first letter of each line of the headline is help black or the first word is help black male which he, they think that'll send people to their rescue then we have a flashback to how uh, blizzard was in jail but created a, a costume a, a new blizzard costume for himself somehow and got powered by electro uh, and also fused the blizzard costume to him uh, which uh, I guess uh, I don't know uh, anyway, Daredevil comes bursting into the <laughs> office and kicks Electro from in the back of the head, and he starts fighting everybody, and Peter manages to change into his Spider-Man costume while looking through the doorway and joins the battle. Unfortunately, the two of them kind of get clumsy and run into each other, knocking each other down, which allows uh, Daredevil, uh, excuse me, Electro and Blizzard to escape the room. While they cha make, give chase, uh, Bushkin and, and and uh, excuse me, and J. Jonah Jameson decide to team up to help the battle and rescue the Daily Bugle. And uh, Electro, showing that he's kind of a bumbling fool, brings them down to the basement instead of the main floor. So they're kind of stuck there. And basically, 
jo Jameson and, and Bushkin decide to attack, quietly attack them with chairs, which really seems pretty stupid. And Bushkin kind of says <laughs> something about that they're going to end up in the obituaries because of this. But at the same moment, Spider-Man and Daredevil come in and make their attack. And then we have a little punchy, punchy fight, fight, run, run, however that expression goes. <laughs> uh, Spider-Man and, and Daredevil both kind of manipulate the foes a little bit to rescue each other at key moments. And de uh, basically the misfired shot from Electro causes Blizzard to freeze over, at which point Spider-Man and Daredevil both swing at Electro, keeping their bodies above the ground as they each throw a haymaker at him, knocking him out. And we end our story there. And next issue is the long-awaited return of the Black Widow. Where's and she been? I don't know. She's been gone. She's been helping Captain America. <laughs> and she was awesome in Captain America, but let's not go back there again. <laughs> <laughs> this issue, to me, is prototypical Sal Buscema art. Uh, this is Sal Buscema as inked in a kind of just a workmanlike fashion, uh, where his his work is you know it's fine, it's acceptable, but it's nothing that really stands out to the eye, uh, as opposed to when he's inked by Klaus Janssen or uh, I'm trying to remember who did the work in. I just did an episode with uh, the less interesting duo. And we did an issue of Marvel Team Up where he was inked by somebody else who I can't recall off the top of my head, but it also looked outstanding. What uh, issue number was that? Uh, like 80-something. Who was in it? Uh, Shang-Chi. Maybe it was 60-something. Well, I don't even recall off. I'll look it up while you're... Uh... It, was, it might have been 60-something. It was, the, it was uh, part of a, uh, a run, but it was also... It also really made the artwork pop. This one I don't think does. I think the artwork, like I said, it's fine, it's acceptable, but there's nothing about it that makes it stand out of just kind of a house style. Uh, and the story kind of underlines what I've always said about Electro. I always thought, here's a guy with a po powers on the scale of like what Magneto has, and yet he's a B-lister where Magneto's an A-lister. And, yeah. and, and I think the story just kind of emphasizes that with his plot here, that he's, he's you know, in, instead of having grandiose schemes, he's just blackmailing local newspapers for money. Well, that, that's exactly it. Electro is not a B-lister in his power level. Um, I, I mean, he was made into a B-lister by Mark Miller in certain issues. But power-wise, he's up there with the best of them. He can control electricity. He can do pretty much anything he wants. You should be scared of somebody who can control electricity. I think the problem with him isn't a problem with the character, per se. It's that Max Dillon has no ambition. He just wants to be rich. And a good writer can make that work within their plot and have Spider-Man or Daredevil or whoever it is who's fighting him exploit that as being the reason that brings about his downfall. Yeah, which I think, you know, Mantlo is a fine writer, and I think he does kind of do it here. And he, he does a nice, you know, all-in-one story, uh, you know, whatever it is about, I guess about 17, 18 pages of, of story. And it's yeah. really contained, and it's got a fair amount of action in it, and it's got some humor in it. And, you know, it, it's, it's uh, largely forgettable, but it's entertaining. And yeah, I guess... it's, it's, you said it was prototypical Sal Buscema artwork, and I think, at this point, let's be honest, Sal was drawing, what, 90% of Marvel's books? <laughs> it felt and that so, way. yeah, some of the stuff's going to struggle. I mean, when he inked himself in Spectacular Spider-Man in the 90s, he looked magnificent. When Bill Sinkovich inked him, 
in uh, in the mid 90s he looked magnificent here it's it's like you say it's serviceable it's good sequential art it tells the story but there's nothing amazing about it but it's a prototypical issue of team up mm-hmm. in in the same way that it's prototypical salbus emma the two heroes meet up to fight with two villains that have teamed up there's nothing staggering about it the best bit about it for me was J. jonah jameson and barney bushkin who <laughs> they, were, they, they were comic relief yeah, we were comic relief, and and they did a very good job of doing them as comic relief without making them look silly, which is always the danger you you take on when you try and make two characters comic relief. They do a good job of because Bushkin and Jonah were professionals, and at this time they were the Daily Globe was a serious rival for the Daily Bugle, and Peter actually did go and work for Bushkin for a while. He got fed up of Jonah. That's right. Yeah, I forgot and about Barney that. Bushkin paid him what his pictures were worth. And for a short time, he went over and worked at the Daily Globe for a bit. And it was yeah. only when the Daily Globe shut down in a Roger Stern issue that he went back to the Daily Bugle. Scott, did you find that issue? I'm sorry. Yeah, is it, uh, is it one where Spider-Man and Shang-Chi uh, Shang are fighting uh, Silver Samurai and Boomerang? Yeah, number 84. Steve Lealoha. Yes. Steve Lealoha. Yeah, he uh, was actually the regular inker on Marvel Team-Up for about five issues, uh, is what I'm showing here. Um, between, where was it? I just had it here a second ago. Oh, come on. But, I mean, I, I don't want to go too much into that one because we do have an episode that covers it. Uh, in fact, right. when this when this airs, it will have been the week before his episode. Oh, okay. Uh, but yeah, but in, in that, I, I, think that, I think that inking complements Busima so much better than, uh, than uh, what's his name, Dave Hunt, who I'm not oh, really Dave, very familiar with. Dave Hunt wasn't particularly spectacular over Kurt Swan either on Superman. I was just going to say, wasn't he he's one of Swan's regular inkers? Yeah. yeah. As a matter of fact, I tend to think... Ooh, I, I don't want to be... <laughs> I have no idea if Dave Hunt's still alive or not, but I tend to think that one of the reasons that I find those particular Kurt Swan-era stories of Superman um, uninteresting or undynamic was Dave Hunt's inks, because I can't remember what the hell book it was, but there, not long ago I was looking at some comic drawn by an artist that i love inked by hunt and it had the same effect that that paul's describing here where somehow it took the art down a level to just kind of like like mediocre standard comic book look of the times if you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah and didn't ruin it but just kind of made it undynamic somehow God, yeah, I, it's, it's just workmanlike it's not dynamic i think that's exactly well, what it is he, later on in team he will ink john byrne on the john byrne chris clermont run on team up and again the only reason that it's exciting and dynamic is byrne's layouts were dynamic at that point right the, his inking doesn't i mean if you just look at issue 65 which was the team up with captain britain there's nothing wrong with the art but the reason that it is as dynamic looking as it is is byrne was penciling it at the peak of his game and but hunt's inks don't bring anything to it you know like terry austin's did or al gordon's did but they don't detract from it either and i think the problem you've got with this is sal Buscema's not this isn't sal Buscema's best work i don't think we're dissing on sal to say that so dave hunt's not bringing anything to it that will increase it do you know what i mean yeah, sal's right. this out in a week to probably meet a deadline dave hunt's come on and inked over it in a week and neither of them's bringing their A game to this comic. 
fortunately, both of them are, are good enough that it doesn't matter too much because it's it's only a throwaway issue of team up, really. Yeah. the the only The only shot I don't know that that took me out of the issue because I just didn't like the way it looked in there is uh, there's there's a shot where there's a battle going on and they show Jameson and Bushkin running away. And the positioning of Jameson in that particular shot almost looks like it should be in an Archie comic. I, I know exactly the parallel. I'm just scrolling through. So, yeah, it does. He's like hovering in midair as he runs, isn't he? Yeah. It's like when Scooby-Doo, when they would run and the legs would power around in midair and you'd hear a sound effect. That's exactly what it looks like to me. Yeah, Dave Hunt yeah. was the inker on Scooby-Doo for a whole lot of issues. So you're, no. you're not far <laughs> off, my friend. There you go. Um, it's another one of the two issues that we've picked where Electro teams up with another adversary. And I, I didn't know who the Blizzard was. Whose bad guy is he? Is he Iron a Man? Iron Man. Iron Man started off as, as a, uh, an, an Iceman type guy who was powered by a backpack. Uh, and he was called Jack Frost. And he had the frosty body and everything. Oh, God, that's and, right. And then he returned around Iron Man 86 or so as Blizzard. And then I think this is the next appearance after that. Right, and is he dead at the end of this? No, I you know he he comes back. <laughs> okay, fair I enough. Know, if nothing I else, they've proven in Marvel the... that freezing you does not kill you. Right. Okay. I'm pretty sure he's around at least once or twice in the uh, classic Michelini Layton, uh, and I'm not sure if it was John Romita Jr. Uh, at the time, uh, run of Iron Man, because that's where I know him from. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he he was there during that that point too. I don't know if he was ever the focus of an issue in that run, but I think he was definitely one of the bad guys. You know, right. when he would have to run the gauntlet of bad guys. Right. But uh, yeah. you know, I think I think I have to. I, I'm just realizing now that there's, there's going to be three weeks in a row that the posted episode is going to have a Marvel team-up issue in it. So I'm going to, after this one, I'm going to have to put a little moratorium on Marvel team-up uh, <laughs> for, for a while. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. For, for the, the longest series. time, the, I'm sorry? I said I love the series, but I, I don't want to, I don't want to become overly uh, enamored with one series over others. Well, for the longest time, the, the series that held the record of the most uh, appearances on Back to the Bins was Brave and the Bold. I don't know if it still does hold that record or not, but it was for the longest time. So, But I, I, think, I think you can kind of give a pass to team-up books a lot of the times, because at least you are generally getting you know, one other different character. You know, it might be Spider-Man in every issue, but you know, you're getting somebody else in the, in the team-up portion of it. Well, yeah. and actually, the uh, episode I did with uh, with Charlie Niemeyer, it was an ep- it was the one the one that actually went up the day we're recording this uh, is Human Torch and the Hulk. So it's not even a Spider Man. There you one. go. Good stuff. I, I thought the pacing for this was off a little bit in the middle. So basically, Peter Parker shows up. He sneaks down a corridor that's just a little bit dark, which I didn't buy. Hides in the corner, puts himself up to the roof, and then spends three pages four pages just watching what's going on without actually interfering it's almost a little dated because he's looking at them through a transom and i don't think they make those anymore (laughs) and then he just hangs around again when daredevil shows up you get the feeling spider-man's just there going i'm only here for payday i really don't want to get involved he actually kind of says something to that effect to Daredevil. Mm-hmm. And when Daredevil questions him, he's like, yeah, forget about it. <laughs> um, the change in the costume bit 
where did his shoes go? He's got them wrapped around his neck in one panel, and then they're just gone in the next. So was he dropping his clothes on the floor? Because then in the next panel, you see that he's got a web balloon in on the roof. The implication being he's webbed his clothes up in that balloon, but he's still wearing his pants. Right. Yeah, he's, he's taking off his pants as he's fighting the bad guys at that point. Yeah. So that bit just didn't work for me, that Spider-Man would wait four whole pages while Electro and Blizzard monologue about what their plan is before he interferes. Well, you could also see in... There's that panel where you see it up in the corner, and then two panels later, the one that goes across the whole page, if you look at the very, very top center of it, you could see the very bottom yeah. of the webbed uh, area. So you think he just stuck his pants in afterwards? Or maybe he stuck his pants up against him, threw a little bit more web fluid on him. <laughs> Possibly. I, I like the, the typical Marvel moment where the heroes get in each other's way. Yeah, I, I like that. I, I, uh, I think that's uh, better uh, than have them, having them work, work together smoothly right yeah, from the start. I thought that was, that was quite funny. I like that a great deal. Um, but the final action scene just didn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense. What, the punching uh, Electro or yeah, the, the way the they whole, got Blizzard? The, the, all of it. The, all of it just didn't. It looked like... So they're fighting amongst the presses. So they both double-team Electro, punch him into the presses, and he bounces off them into the wall... No, I didn't. I didn't buy that at all. If he'd went into the presses, <laughs> in them and been crushed, it should be like uh, Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom. Yeah, you don't bounce off a printing press, surely. I guess the thought is that that particular roller is heading in that direction. So when he hit it, it's it's going at a high speed and it just kind of flung him. I, I mean, mean I it, it doesn't make sense, but it's yeah. it's kind of fun from a cartoony perspective. And that this issue is a cartoon, isn't it? This could have easily been an, an issue, an episode of the 90s cartoon series. Yeah, so if we take it on that level, then it works perfectly fine. I yeah. know that I have read another issue of Spider-Man somewhere where there's a fight down here in the presses. And I want to say some of it was in the dark. Yes, you have. Spider-Man was in... Issue. Is it? Yeah. Yep. Where he's in danger of falling into the presses and everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's an early Dick Coa. I knew I had. Yeah, I, I actually enjoyed it. I mean, because I, you know, it feels like what it is. It's it's a it's a quintessential issue of Marvel team up. It gives you everything you need. It's all wrapped up nicely in one issue. It doesn't change the world. It's just you know a couple superheroes team up to battle a couple of super villains, and it's a fun little romp. And then it quickly ends and on to the next adventure. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I kind of miss the days when comics could be like this. Well, yeah, I, it, I, was, it was a solid read. Good, entertaining, one-issue read. There was nothing wrong with it at all. I've said for a long time the reason they can't be like this anymore is because they charge you $4 an issue. Hmm. Yeah, but arguably $4 an issue for a complete story that takes more than five minutes to read would be considered better value for money. But every issue has to have long-lasting consequences now. You exactly. can't you can't yeah. have a light one-off that it's, everything's exactly. just status quo when it's over. And, and you know, if, if you didn't read it, it doesn't affect anything. Yeah, there's no room anymore for a good story well told. Everything has to matter. Everything has to be important. Everything has to change everything as you know it. There's there, Yeah, you're right. There's no room for something like this anymore. Yeah, it's sad, but it's true. It is true. It's it's one of the reasons that the the last incarnations, at least the last incarnations I'm aware of, of both 
Brave and the Bold and Marvel team up for as much fun as they were. Ultimately, they they didn't really work and they didn't last is because both of those series, each issue built on itself to where it may not have affected the overall DC or Marvel universe, but they were trying to build a universe within a universe in that title mm-hmm. and leading up to the, these big events within the book itself. And that's not the quintessential Brave and the Bold or Marvel team up. The Brave and the Bold on uh, with George Perez and I think was it Busiak that wrote it? Mark Wade. I, Mark Wade. Yeah. That was that was a nice run too. I enjoyed reading that. Yeah. But st- again, did it really give you that that vibe of the old days? Eighties. Mm, if you want to say old days, eighties, not seventies. Right. It gave me a little bit more of that. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was a fun read, and it 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 moved on from issue to issue. It, it reminded me, in some ways, of like uh, when they would do a uh, a longer story in uh, Marvel Team Up or Marvel Two and One, not to the level of it, but like when uh, they did the Pegasus Project in Marvel Two and One. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll give you that. Yeah, that's true. Because a lot of those stories did uh, they were multi issue uh, multi issue stories. You're right. That's that's yeah. the feel I got from it, and and it was enjoyable. And but again, you know, for four dollars an issue, people are hesitant to get stuff that, you know, in air quotes, doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, I, I think part of it too is when you're squeezed out by all the other books that you have to get to keep up with whatever your favorite, you know, team or character are, or whatever. Do you have that extra? money left over to chance on something that might be a a hell of a lot of fun, but it's not owing into that other stuff that you're already reading. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's the problem with modern comics and it's ultimately going to probably be the downfall of it. And on that happy note, (laughs) I, I enjoyed this. As I said, it's funny. I only ever took one note on the entire issue and that was just on page, uh, page six that very first panel when uh, Peter Parker walks into the Daily Bugle, he's thinking to himself, he says, something is definitely rotten at this great metropolitan newspaper, which is actually an Adventures of Superman reference. I thought mm. that was interesting. But that's all, I, that's we, all know, I had. See, you know what would be cool is if that was tied in with one of the gangsters looking like Clark Kent. <laughs> mm. just, just for an inside joke. Well, I know that uh, Kent did make frequent appearances at the Daily Bugle back around this time, particularly when uh, when John Byrne would guest uh, draw. Yeah, he's, issue he's at Marvel the Christmas Tenet. party in the Red Sonja issue. Mm-hmm. Because Robbie actually asks him, what's it like working for a great metropolitan newspaper? That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love them, things like that. Especially when they don't bludgeon you with it when it doesn't really affect the story but just so this way if you're not aware it's a reference it's not going to bog you down mm-hmm. and it just moves along but if you are aware it just brings a smile to your face and then you move on mm-hmm. good stuff absolutely okay anybody got anything else on this one i got nothing nope it was it was a good solid read i enjoyed it it's a typical bronze age marvel team of issue absolutely nothing <laughs> wrong with it i would tend to agree with you Oh, there was uh, just one more reference that I did make when I or noticed when I was reading it was he start uh, you know Daredevil becomes aware that that he's working with somebody at some point oh early on very at the very beginning and he says 
why don't you just level with Daredevil, friend? And yeah. that, was, that was the title of his uh, letter stage. Letters, yeah. Excellent. I did not notice that. Yeah, brilliant. So I, I just that, that, that goes exactly to what we were just saying about a little reference. Yeah, yeah a little in joke. That's funny. All right. What's All right. our next issue, guys? Who's got it? I got it. And before we get there, I got to thinking, um, how come we didn't do an all rhino episode? We should do an all rhino episode at some point. <laughs> I'm I'm on I'm on board for that. We could just do that. Uh, it, we'll do it in a month or two. I I, I like that idea because I like the rhino and uh, I, I I didn't chime in when you said it before. You were talking about you know why didn't they put him in the costume and all that. I, I you know I gotta disagree. Rhino to me, I would love to see the actual comic book rhino on the big screen the the idea of him driving a, a, a rhino tank in the movie is another thing that kind of put me off from being terribly interested in the in the new movie i get i get a kick out of in the 60s uh, cartoon when his motivation was to steal all gold to make a life-size rhino statue of himself <laughs> <laughs> sure why not <laughs> And he, I, right. I do remember in the cartoon where they would do the thing with the feet, like uh, Andy was saying, when he went to run, when he was getting ready to, you know, like, to battering ram Spider-Man, mm-hmm. he, 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 he would be basically motionless, but his feet would be spinning and spinning and spinning to build up speed so that he could charge him. <laughs> Good stuff. <laughs> well, our next book is one that uh, initially Andy and I both chose, and then uh, he was gracious enough to change his selection, so I got this book, which was really cool, because I don't know what else I would have chosen if he hadn't given this one up. This is Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, number 66, the May 1982 issue. Original cover price, 60 cents. Cover on this is by Ed Hannigan and Al Milgram, who uh, also provide the interior art on this. I really, really like this cover. I always have. Now, I'm not a fan of either uh, Hannigan or Milgram, and the perspectives don't really work on this cover, but somehow the cover still works. I still think it's a it's a really cool cover. Uh, Electro is actually standing on top of an, 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 it looks like an electric sign on the top of a building. It's actually uh, a billboard for Epic Illustrated, which was one of Marvel's magazines at the time. He's uh, got Spider-Man, he's holding him over his head, got Spider-Man by the ankle and pumping all this current through him. And uh, it must really be juicing uh, Spider-Man because his gloves have actually uh, been burned black or blue here. And he's got... uh, lightning flying off of his fingertips as well it's just a really cool cover i've always liked this one and uh, i like the backgrounds and all the little details that are put in the uh, approved by the comics code authority is actually a, a a lighted sign as well hanging off the sign of a building in the background which i thought was a really cool little little addition to it it's very uh, eisner-esque with uh, the title of the the book and uh, all this stuff in the background but i, I like the cover i think it's really cool uh, story in this one is also by Bill Mantlo. And getting right into this one, I, there's not really a title for this one. I saw in Mike's Amazing World where uh, he had titled the story uh, from what Electro says uh, a little ways into the story. It's just he called it Electro Will Be Free. But I didn't really get the feeling based on the issue that that was necessarily the, the title of the story. It appears to be title less. 
Anyway, at uh, Rikers Island Penitentiary, a careless split-second mistake by a guardsman gives special prisoner Max Dillon just the break he's been waiting for, and suddenly, Electro is free. The master of electricity has been refining his powers low these many months and can now both draw electrical energy into himself and extend his control to electrically powered objects. Wasting no time, he juices up and surfs the power lines into the Big Apple, site of his last defeat at the hands of the Fantastic Four and, of course, Spider-Man. In New York City, at the corner of 86th and 3rd, Peter Parker keeps an appointment with Marcy Kane, who has been tutoring him and trying to help him get his grades up. They are spotted by Biff Rifkin who points out Peter to his date, Deborah Whitman, and asks her if she wants to go over and say hi. But Deborah, who actually does have the hots for Peter Parker, declines. Eventually, Peter winds up back at Marcy's place and, after a scolding for coming on to her too strongly, settles in to watch a little tube while Marcy prepares them a meal. Before long, she reappears with dinner, but Peter is gone. In his place, only the television and a blaring news report of Electro on the rampage. Peter naturally has switched to Spider-Man and now swings his way to a confrontation with the supervillain in the process, passing J. Jonah Jameson, who's stuck in a cab thanks to Electro having absorbed all the ambient electrical energy in the area and causing a massive traffic jam. J.J. follows Spider-Man, presuming he is in league with Electro. Spider-Man eventually arrives at the scene to find Electro standing atop a movie marquee and threatening innocent passers-by. He yanks his enemy down with a web line and a spectacular fight ensues in which, despite having appropriated some insulated gloves to try and protect himself from shock, Spider-Man is soundly defeated. He manages to sneak away unnoticed and limp home while JJ, unable to find Spider-Man's body, theorizes that the wall crawler was vaporized and calls in the story to the Daily Bugle. Back at his apartment, Peter fashions a new costume to replace his tattered and torn blue and reds, this one made quite literally out of an old rubber air mattress. Oh, and he uh, also takes a call from the Undying One, otherwise known as uh, Aunt May Kids. At the, uh, <laughs> at the Daily Bugle, J. Jonah Jameson is giddy with excitement as he triumphantly waves a copy of his latest edition, hot off the press, in the air and gloats that the wall crawler is dead, only to have Robbie Robertson point out the web slinger as he swings by the window on his way to a rematch with Dylan. On Broadway... Spider-Man lights into Electro, given new confidence and insurance thanks to his insulated suit. Spider-Man taunts the villain, making Electro realize that he will never beat Spider-Man in a fair fight, and so he switches tactics to once again threatening the citizenry all around them. Electro offers Spider-Man a deal, his life for the lives of the innocents below. Spider-Man reluctantly agrees and holds out his hand so that Electro can deliver a lethal jolt of killer current. But as soon as the blast is delivered, Electro receives a teeth-shattering uppercut in return from our not-electrocuted hero. Soon, Spider-Man delivers the webbed-up, presumably unconscious bad guy to the Fuzz, who asks him, how come he ain't dead from that blast? Spider-Man explains that, apparently, Electro didn't even realize that he was wearing an insulated costume. 
Crisis averted, Spider-Man heads to the Daily Bugle, intent on heckling JJJ over the false Spider-Man is dead headline. But when he finds the publisher, head in his hands, obviously upset and humiliated by his own irresponsibility, Spider-Man decides to forego adding insult to injury. And we end the issue with the spectacular one standing on the rooftops, New York City skyline in the background, reflecting on how he saved the day, but at the expense of his tutor, his costume, and very nearly getting himself killed. And he wonders, not for the first or last time, why he even bothers. So what you guys think of this one? Oh, that was brilliant. Loved every page of it. Thought it was fantastic. Yep. Uh, going back to the cover, if you go on Mike's Amazing Worlds of, of Comics and pull up the Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man listing, the covers on this book from about issue 45 through to about issue 75 are some of the finest run of Spider-Man covers ever. Mm-hmm. There's some magnificent covers in this era. Frank Miller did a couple. Byrne did a couple. Mike Zeck did a couple. Ed Hannigan, Al Milgram. And they're all just so eye-catching and popping off the stands. Every single one of them, Ed Hannigan was doing layouts where he was breaking with the tradition of what a comic book cover looks like. He would break the logo. This cover has no comic, no logo. Not the traditional Spectacular Spider-Man logos, not on the comic. It's It's wonderful. And it's not... Only, the only way this, this issue breaks comics form, like Scott said, there's no title, there's no splash page, you're straight into the action. The first five pages of this story have more happening than in the issue that Bill would have picked had he been able to join us. It's just <laughs> an absolutely blinding issue, similar to the Marvel team-up of a kind they don't make anymore. It's not important, major stuff doesn't happen, but it's an excellent story, well told with tons of elements in it that make a quintessential spider-man story he has to Mm -hmm. do something that costs him on a personal level he loses just as much as he wins in fact in this issue he loses his battle initially because he's cocky he's taken Electra out before he thinks i can take him out again he's not a threat it's this is going back to what paul and i discussed earlier that electro isn't a b-lister in the power level department but he treats him as a B-lister because he's just not got any ambition. And Peter underestimates him because of that. Whereas this is an Electro that's pissed off. This is an Electro that's fueled up on power and has just had enough. And even though he's not particularly the sharpest tool in the box, he's powerful enough that if he puts his mind to it, he takes Spider-Man down and relatively easily. The art's brilliant. It powers through. It's a great comic absolutely fantastic it is the better of the two bill mantler ones we've picked today in that it's it's denser there's more going on it feels more like a chapter of peter parker's life at this time in comics history i mean the the roll call of supporting characters marcy kane deborah whitman biff rifkin lance bannon is in this issue and it's just a marvellous callback to the 80s where they tried to give Peter a whole new life um, span, essentially, a whole new creative team brought in, a whole new supporting cast, and they tried to do something different with it instead of just dining on what Stan Lee and Steve Ditko and John Romita and Jerry Conway had done all those years before. And it was actually a pleasure to see them all again and know that some of them are dead now. I think Biff Rifkin and Lance Bannon are dead. Marla Madison's definitely dead. What happened to uh, what happened to Biff Grim- Biff Rifkin? 
I don't recall. I'm sh- I don't know if he just disappeared. That's what I'm saying. I didn't, can't remember uh, about him. Didn't Marty McFly beat him up? <laughs> it may- <laughs> I know Lance Bannon's dead. I do I hope that Lance- Biff Rifkin just just as he was dying, the last his last words were, "Oh shit!" <laughs> <laughs> I hate manure. <laughs> <laughs> See, from a storytelling perspective, I agree with you 100%, Andy, and I can't say it better than what you said. Uh, Artwork-wise, I'm going back and forth on this. First of all, I love the cover. I think the cover is gorgeous. I I would, if I, you know, every once in a while I wish I had some original artwork. I would love to own the original artwork on this page. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the interior art, I like the layouts a lot, and I like the way it's, the story is told. I like the fact that they very rarely have a standard grid. It, it, they're, they're breaking the convention on almost every panel, every page, with how it's laid out. Uh, and but I, I think again, and I, I hate to harp on the same thing over and over again. The detail work, the inking by Jim Mooney, I think leaves a little something to be desired. Uh, I think there's points where the, where the bat, where, the, where it's it looks like he took the fast way out and didn't really add the detail work in. There's other points where it's a little too busy on what he did with some of the detail work, and some of the facial renderings are uh, less than spectacular. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb, despite what the credits say, and I'm going to say Ed Hannigan only laid this out, and what you're actually seeing is Jim Mooney art. Because if you, you know, look through this, this looks like Jim Mooney more than it looks Ed Hannigan. But like you said, the perspectives and the angles and the panel layouts, that's all Hannigan. Look at those covers on Mike's Amazing World yeah. and the layouts mm-hmm. of those covers. I think Hannigan only laid this out. So yeah, when, when, you say, to, when you I, say uh, brilliant, I will grant you that on the pencils. Right. I'm not necessarily going to give you that on the inks. I need to amend what I said in in my credits because it just occurred to me when you said Jim Mooney, I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah, you're right. I I had said that, you know, the cover on this is by Hannigan and Milgram. I said they did the interiors. I was wrong. It's Hannigan and Mooney on the interiors, and you're absolutely right. Yeah, it it is different. Now, uh, just as as a background check while you were doing it uh to take to take us from mike's amazing world i went to the marvel comics database and they also have the title listed as electro will be free hmm now i'm with scott i don't think it has a title i i think i i tend to think you're both right i think this is a title this story and that, that they were breaking convention uh in in many many ways in this issue uh but i think that for whatever reason that Marvel has designated that as the title, so I'll go with it. I like the little things that happen in the background. One of the things that I get a kick out of reading old comics like this is, especially when they were in a city, particularly New York City, a lot of times the artists would put little details into the background. And so when Spider-Man swings to... to uh, confront electro for the first time electro standing on top of that movie marquee the movie that's playing is heavy mental but <laughs> the way it's lettered is obviously it's supposed to be heavy metal the movie but it's it, you know they added the n in there to ha- make it heavy mental but if you turn the page from that to page 13 that first panel electro is being yanked off of the uh the marquee by spider-man's web 
and it says again heavy mental and then in the uh the smaller print it says in dolby instead of saying in dolby surround sound it says in dolby gillis sound and dolby <laughs> gillis was obviously an old tv show i just i thought that was cute i like totally yeah. missed that earlier on as well there's a late raiders of the lost park on page five when oh, spider that. first arrive in uh, in new york to to meet up with marcy and further down there's a film playing with dudley moore in it I miss that. I'm trying to flip back to it as fast as I can. Raised the Lost Park, I see. Raised the Lost Park. And later oh. on, when they're walking through, they're passing Annie. I see. Annie. Somewhere, yeah. Well, I see, I, yeah, the, the movie with Dudley Moore is, it's A-R-T, so con- presumably it's Arthur. Yeah. There's just so, this feels like it's happening in a, a bustling Times Square. There is a lot of times, despite the setting being New York, it could really be anywhere. But this actually feels like New York is integral to this story. On that same page, third that third panel where it says Raiders of the Lost Park, that marquee that's on the left over there, I struggled to try to think, if, if that's a movie, what movie is it? I know it, what movie it is. What is it? Honky Tonk Freeway. I was just going to say that. that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah, I Which struggled. Is a lesser known, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, the guy who did MASH. Oh. Oh. I'm pretty sure that's an Altman movie. The only thing I could think of is that the first word ended with onk, and then at the bottom where it's uh, E-W-A-Y, I thought might be Faye Dunaway. That's the only thing I could think of. So, yeah. All right. Cool. (laughs) That always bugs me when they they have, like, just part of it like that, trying to figure out what it is. Excuse me. Honky Tonk Freeway was directed by John Schlesinger. Please do not send me email. <laughs> well, we wouldn't have corrected. It's starring Beverly D'Angelo, Hume Cronin, Jessica Tandy, Terry Gar, Bo Bridges, Daniel Stern, and Geraldine Page. Wow. So nobody has to send me any email on that particular topic. I really like in this uh which which page is it? It's on page eleven when they're in the taxi. The two shots I really like is that when Electro makes his appearance, Mala's hair stands on it. <laughs> I really like that, and I also like the perspective shot where you where you see the cab driver's hand uh, and the meter in the cab, and through the windshield from quite a distance, you see Electro kind of riding his electric wave. Mm-hmm. It's it's very cartoony in how it's rendered, but it just looks cool to me. Yeah, it's the I think the, the laying out's brilliant, but Bantler does put some brilliant character bits in. The middle bit where Peter goes to Marcy's apartment to study and hits on her. And she just knocks him back. Yeah. But then when she comes back in with something to eat, she's obviously is really secretly keen. That, I thought that was a lovely bit. I thought it was a lovely little scene. But in the meantime, Peter's buggered off to, to go and do something as Spider-Man. That's what I was saying earlier. There is so many bits in this that are quintessentially Spider-Man. And the ending, that where he's, he's the last panel of this issue, is straight out of Ditko, where he's yeah. just stood on, on a rooftop looking across as New York as the, as the sun rises is a gorgeous panel and a, a really bittersweet ending as spider-man had a lot a lot of his endings were bittersweet yes he'd done the right thing yes he'd beat the bad guy but at what cost to him personally and that's a spider-man story i would say yeah. good choice scott but i gotta say good choice scott and andy since you both picked this book well it's funny i mean scott's been overly generous i changed my mind before he said what he was going to pick because <laughs> my original thinking was we'd both picked stories by bill mantlow 
And I thought, all right, well, let's mix it up. But this was the first place my mind went when you said, when you invited me on, I said, we're doing Electra. This was the first issue I thought of. And I think the reason for that is this cover. Well, see, it, it was really, uh, it really blew me away when I realized that both of these stories are by Mantlo. Because while Spider-Man, I think, feels largely the same between the two issues, Electro feels completely different between the Marvel team-up issue and this issue. Because in Marvel team-up, he's very much uh, just uh, you know a, a chump of a two-chump team of... of they, uh, that could be any two supervillains in that. You know, any two, like, you know, C-list supervillains in that story. Electro just happens to be one of them. But there's not, not anything that he does that's, like, particularly quintessential Electro in that story. He's just one of the villains. Whereas this is like he's the villain and he's he's done very creatively i i was struggling to try to remember what was my first exposure to electro and i honestly can't remember but it's very likely this which could owe into why i have never really seen electro as a chump villain because in this he's a legitimate threat he takes out the city you know he's he's holding new york hostage essentially and if it wasn't for Spider-Man going back and in, in, uh, creating this insulated suit, he's really got no way of defeating this guy. And I really liked that. The, you know, the, the power level is really ramped up with this villain in this. Right from the beginning of the story, Electro even says, you know, while I've been in stir, I've been, you know, refining my ability. So when he finally gets free... That's why he goes on this power-hungry rampage because he wants to show the world and Spider-Man, you know, just how much of not a chump he really is and how much of a threat he really is. I like that. I mean, he's intent on first he's going to humble Spider-Man and then he's so uh, drunk on his own power that his next step is he's going to go after the FF, which that's pretty cool. I like that. That that's definitely not the thought process of a chump villain. So I like that a yeah. lot. Much more well, grandiose. This this comes from an era. I mean, again, we're referring to the covers for this era, but it comes from an era where good writers, Roger Stern and Bill Mantlo especially, are other than the too cool for school writers we have today who think, well, he's mm -hmm. a B-lister, so I will treat him badly. Look right. at that. Look at those covers. In this short run of issue, we made the Gibbon, the Ringer, yes, I was, yeah. the Jack-O-Lantern, Cloak mm -hmm. and Dagger, uh, Molten Man, credible villains. In the next issue after this, Bill Mantlo makes Boomerang a credible bad guy. Again, there are no bad characters. There's just lazy writers. Okay, Bill Mantlo did this on a weekly, monthly basis. Sorry, he took what we consider even Craven. He did an issue where he made Craven the Hunter a credible threat. So by the time he got through to doing the Doc Ock Owl Gang War, where he had two bad guys there who were already A-listers, that was a this was a brilliant run of Peter Parker. Absolutely fantastic. Mm -hmm. Not just him, Roger Stern did. A, a man's job as well to use a sexist term i do apologize if any women listen but um it's it's yeah it's we've seen we've come in now we've seen 10 years worth of certain writers who will remain nameless treating certain characters as b-listers because they don't have the imagination to do something with them and here we see two writers saying all right what makes this character a credible threat 
right. and doing something with it. And this issue is a perfect example of that. Electro's not an idiot in this issue. He may not be bright, he may not have huge ambition, but he's powerful, and he's got to the point where he's realized this. Right. Yeah, I think this is an incredible era. I mean, of course, I'm prejudiced, and I, I suspect maybe you are a little bit too, Andy, because this is my era of Spider-Man. This is when I really got into Spider-Man and discovered him because I was collect actively collecting Spider-Man during this time. I got sucked in during the uh, the Roger Stern run on Spectacular, and then when Stern left to go to Amazing and was doing Amazing Spider-Man concurrently with this, I actually stuck with this because Mantlo's writing style was so similar to what Stern was doing that to this very day, I often confuse the two because I really thought that this was a Roger Stern issue until I pulled it out and started rereading it and realized that it was Mantlo. But I don't know how I felt about Mantlo as a kid. I really can't remember. But these days, I have really come to appreciate him as a writer. Uh, A lot of it comes from just... You know, he's been getting a lot of sort of what I would call like underground press lately because of his plight. And, you know, Guardians is about to hit the big screen and everything. So it's kind of brought his plight and predicament kind of back into fan interest again. If you don't, if you guys listening don't know what I'm talking about, just look up Bill Mantlo and, and bring yourself up to speed on what's going on with him. He has a, it's, it's a very sad story, but the guy was a hell of a writer. And look what, I've he, been look reading... what he did with the, uh, the whatchamacallit, the, the licensed characters. Yeah, yeah. Characters that people thought nobody could ever write interesting stories for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a lot of what I've been reading lately is, uh, you know, he, he had uh, runs with, uh, you know, the Micronauts and with ROM. And I, I'm just, I'm really, really impressed with the guy's writing style. It's, you know, the, the comics are very much uh, a product of their time, but... I don't think that 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 should be tossed around as some sort of uh, negative statement that I like the way he writes his comics because they do feel like, you know, 80s comics, the comics that I enjoy most to this very day. And I really I like his stuff. I'm glad to kind of rediscovered him a little bit and uh, and have gotten back into that. It's just a shame that his life has the tragic turn that it does. Absolutely, it really is. It's such yeah. such a, a loss of not only you know just human life. It's terrible to have that happen, but such a talent is it's a real waste. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think it's great. Marvel are rewarding him with this Guardians of the Galaxy stuff. His brother apparently posted either on Facebook or sent out a message or something. A lot of people, you know what they're like. Why is he not receiving any money for this? And his brother said, actually, Marvel's been really good to us. Good, and it's I'm nice to, to hear. That. That side of the story, instead of just hearing people griping and suing, it's nice to hear Mike Mantlo come out, who had no, he had nothing to gain by doing this, coming out and saying, "Look, don't be dissing on Marvel. They are being very good to him with regards to this Guardians of the Galaxy movie, and the money that they're giving us is helping us a great deal." Well, so I, I would I imagine think- a man who's gone through what he has with his brother uh, probably is deeply touched by them being generous to him. Yeah. Right. So it's, so it, it's it's maybe he doesn't have any financial gain out of out of defending them, but you know I, I would imagine emotionally it's it's yeah. very important to him. And just on an honourable level, he wants it made known. Look, the the this big huge conglomerate that you're always dissing is being good to this one man, and it's making a difference. And it's also satisfying as well reading Sean Howe's book how much Mantler was referred to as a hack by no lesser than Jim Shooter. 
And it's nice that we're going back and reappraising his stuff and going, actually, this was damn good stuff. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, I, 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 I think he had a brilliant career. And I like I said, a shame it was cut short. Yeah. And we've just got one last thing on this. Hold on a second. Oh, old comic smell. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I actually dug this one out. I actually bought this off the stands because like you, Scott, this was Roger Stern and Bill Mantlo, my year of Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. You know, for what it's worth, this is the coming up on the tail end of it, but this is also my era. It's just you guys were just getting into it where I was, you know, I was in college when this came out. Yeah, I'll have been 10 when this came out. Oh, on. shut up. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I I didn't buy this off the stands. I bought it off from, uh, you know, I had the uh, the bag at the comic store by this time. No, mine is, mine is the British version. It's got 25p on, and we don't have the barcode. We've got Spider-Man's head instead. Excellent issue. Good choice. All right, and I guess it's time to move on to issue number three. Oh, that's me, isn't it? Sorry. (laughs) So when you actually want me to talk, I shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Sorry about that. Uh, Yeah, I picked Untold Tales of Spider-Man issue 11. Shock Follows Shock, which was written by Kirk Busiek. Kurt Busiek, I do apologise. Uh, it was pencilled by Pat O'Leaf and inked by Al Vey and Pam Eklund. The cover was also by O'Leaf and Vey. It shows Electro and the Eel, both with power just emanating from their hands as they burn Spider-Man's mask. It makes the issue look a lot more exciting than it actually is. Which I suppose is the point of a good cover, isn't it? Leopold Strike, a.k.a. the Eel, fed up with being beaten up by the Human Torch, breaks Max Dillon, a.k.a. Electro, out of jail, feeling that two electrically powered individuals together will be unbeatable. I presume we'll see about that. Peter Parker, meanwhile, is fixing his costume when new costumed do-gooder Bluebird drops by and reveals she is really classmate Sally Avril, and she wants Peter to promote her by selling pictures of her to the Daily Bugle like he does with Spider-Man. If he doesn't, Avril warns him, she will reveal his secret job to the world. Peter counteracts this the next day at school when, during show and tell, he comes clean about his extracurricular activities. Flash Thompson suddenly sees Peter in a new light. Sally Avril sees Peter as someone she wants to beat about the head. Flash invites Peter for a soda after school, pestering Peter for data about Spider-Man and leaving Peter stuck for switching identities when news comes down the expositional news network, copyright Mike Bailey, that Electro and the Eel are busting up the Con Edison building. They are demanding $10 million and Peter can't switch to Spider-Man due to Flash's interference, so he plants a spider tracer to follow them later. Finally ditching Flash, Spider-Man follows the tracer's signal, tracking Electro and the Eel to a power plant in Brooklyn. Bluebird shows up, causing Spider-Man no end of grief, but taking a leaf out of the Doctor's book, Spider-Man reverses the polarity of the Eel's electric field, gluing he and Electro together in a case of magnetic attraction. Bluebird then kicks them both into the water and shorts out their costumes, enabling them to escape. Spider-Man can't pursue as Flash Thompson arrives looking for Peter. Peter returns and gives Flash a dressing down, which leads Flash to reveal that Peter is a jerk once again, leaving Peter to worry about what he's going to do next about Bluebird. What do we think of this one, fellas? Hmm. 
I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I liked the writing a lot. I, I really, uh, I, I like what they were going for with uh, Untold Tales, you know, trying to kind of fill in the, the in-betweens of the early issues of, uh, of Amazing Spider-Man and all that. I think this may be the first full issue of this I've ever read. I'm not, I'm not entirely positive. And if I'm not mistaken, didn't th- this, uh, what was her name? The one that's Bluebird. Sally, Sally Avril. Sally Avril. She was from the original comics, right? I think uh, she had like she a one appears, panel appearance. Yeah. She appears then, in Amazing Fantasy 15. She's referred to as Sally. Kurt Busiek, because he's a continuity hound, pounced on that. Wanted to know what happened. Yeah. Um, doesn't she kind of have a tragic end, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, she gets killed in a car crash. Oh, okay. Trying to pursue somebody in the quest to be Bluebird, she mm. makes Jason, who is another character who just appeared in Amazing Fantasy 15 that Busiek fleshed out, she makes him run a red light and the car gets smashed. She is killed and it's discovered that he didn't have a driver's license. Whoops. Hmm. I, light, I enjoyed it. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I said lighthearted fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I enjoyed it. It, it was interesting. Um, I can never decide what I think of Olaf. It, it's He's got a very strange kind of art style where I actually see it as almost like an amalgamation of, of several other artists. And I wonder if he, if he does have actually like a distinct style, all of his own. Cause as much as I always really wanted to get into, um, spider girl. And I think I have a complete run of that title. If I'm not mistaken, I can never get past his issues on that title. And I, and I'm not sure why there's something about his art. I can only take so much of it at a time. I'm not really sure what it is. I think he's really trying to give a Ditko feel here. Uh, yeah. If if you look at the ish, at this, this panel where uh, Flash Thompson is running towards the uh, reader, that mm-hmm. really just has a Steve Dit- Ditko-esque feel. The way he draws Peter kind of has a, a Ditko-esque feel. Uh I, I don't think this is all his own style. I think he's playing at, at kind of merging his own with a Ditko look uh, right. to try and recreate that feel of the era it's supposed to take place in. Uh, I think the story is, you know, it, it suffers a little bit from that whole aspect of it's filling in the blanks. So there's only so far you can go with anything. Uh, and when we go back to, you know, stories meaning something, uh, you know, I don't. I, I don't think a story has to mean it means something to be interesting, and I think this is a good read. Uh, but I, except for the character character of Sally Averill, I don't know that it's progressing anybody's personality or fleshing anybody else out. Uh, I like that that Peter kind of stands by his principles and and doesn't let her bully him, and 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 comes up with a way of of counteracting her threat. Uh, you know, and and the 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 threat of Electro and the Eel kind of has a 60-ish feel to it. So I, right. I enjoyed the issue. Overall, I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was, you know, a nice, fun read. You know, you got to keep in mind, this came out in an era where I think books were going for $2 each, and it was 99 cents. Yeah, well, that's that's one of the reasons that I, I did pick it. Um, I love Untold Tales. I love the entire run. 
it does suffer from Busiek's love of continuity sometimes, where it feels like he's specifically filling in gaps that may not necessarily needed to have been filled in. Like the big one in this issue is when did Peter Parker's friends discover that he was a photographer for the Daily Bugle? And that's essentially what this is filling in. As an Electro story, I, I picked the wrong one. There's an issue, a couple of a couple of issues before this was the one that I actually meant to pick. Because <laughs> let's be honest, Electro's really irrelevant to this story. It's like Marvel Team Up. It's two villains that could have been anybody, really. They don't really matter who the bad guys are. Yeah. I mean, who the hell is very... the eel? Because I was not familiar with him. Uh, I'm not familiar with the eel either. To he, be other than he, this. he was basically a minor villain. I'm pretty sure he was in Strange Tales, which yeah, touches on the Human Strange Torch Tales having beaten him. Yeah. Uh, he eventually became part of the uh, Serpent Squad with uh, <laughs> Viper and... Uh, I'm trying to remember who else. I think Cobra was in there. Yeah. I mean, I like Pat Olaf, and I loved him on Spider-Girl. Honestly, I really did. He is aping Ditko here, because the whole point of this series is it takes place in between issues, and in some cases in between panels of the Lee Ditko Spider-Man. I think the thing with Untold Tales is the reason I have such a fondness for it, is at the time this was coming out, it was we were in the middle of the Clone Saga. And the Clone Saga had actually caused me to have one of my girly strops, as we all do as comic fans every now and again. And I'd kicked off the Spider-Man books and I wasn't reading any of them and I'd had enough of it and it was all bollocks. And Untold Tales of Spider-Man came along. And for like, I mean, I paid 75p for this because the price is still on it. So 99 cents, 75 pence, whatever. You were getting... 22-page story every week that told a story. It was self-contained in this book. It wasn't crossing over like Clone Saga was. It wasn't convoluted like Clone Saga was. It was just a good, solid read every week, which is what people were asking for. Marvel were constantly being asked for solid, done-in-one stories again. This Clone Saga's convoluted, blah, 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 blah. So they actually gave you what you wanted, and it cost nothing. Again, people were complaining that books are too expensive, so they gave you a 99 cents comic. And it's so like shit. Nobody bought it. Nobody did anything with it. It didn't do anything. Because the very thing that allegedly the audience were asking for was the thing that apparently counted against it, that it didn't matter, that it wasn't part of current continuity, that the stories weren't part of the grand scheme of things. And this is probably where that started in the mid-90s. So... Once again, before even the internet, we're learning that the vocal minority aren't actually representative of what sells. And ultimately, this only lasted for 25 issues, a couple of annuals, and maybe a special here and there. Every single one of them are enjoyable, I think. Uh, There is Glenn Greenberg, who was the editor of the book, has talked about they had plans for following issue 25, And Roger Stern was going to take over and he was going to deal with it, filling in gaps in the college years. But ultimately, sales didn't support it and they cancelled it with issue 25. And it's it's the same kind of uh, problem that ultimately they had with the hidden years, which I think is a vastly over-criticized book. The X-Men one? Yes. Well, the thing, the hidden years, Byrne does have the example of that the X-Men book finished at a certain point and then new X-Men picked up. There is obviously a gap there. And he was essentially filling in one big gap where he could do what he wanted. This was 
there were a couple of issues of this where they published exactly where the stories fitted in and there were some instances where they fitted it in between a panel of an issue and i was i'm always a little bit that's a bit much that's pushing it and it always depends for me which kurt busiek you're going to get are you going to get the astro city kurt busiek who tells good solid stories that are solidly entertaining or are we getting avengers forever kurt busiek who's just far too interested in making all these disparate continuity things fit together in a way that quite frankly i don't care about and in untold tales he kind of managed to mix that together as a single issue, if you're just coming into this cold, I can see your criticism, really, that the Sally Averill stuff does pay off further down the line. I, but I thoroughly enjoyed digging this out again, and it made me want to reread all of Untold Tales, even mm. though I picked the wrong <laughs> issue. I, I would say I actually enjoy both versions of Busiak. I, I enjoyed Avengers Forever, even, even though yeah. it's just crazy complex. Uh, it's, it's not a light sit-down-and-read-it kind of series and eventually maybe we'll cover it on avengers spotlight uh but it's it's i I like both types of stories it just depends on my mood at the moment i liked i really liked what busiak did when he was working with george perez on uh avengers when they came back from uh, heroes reborn yeah yeah that that avengers runs fantastic that to me is and uh, Michael would appreciate this. That that to me is uh, on the same level as what uh, Grant Morrison did with the JLA when he first uh, started up on that. I, I'll insert I, a cricket sound there. That, <laughs> no, it's, it's, I, I can understand it though. No, but when 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 Morrison when Morrison was on JLA, it was a joke, his, son. A joke. No, but his stories his stories on JLA were understandable. They weren't Final Crisis. <laughs> Well, well, yeah, well... Um, I, I couldn't yeah. stand Final Crisis, so Michael won't appreciate that. <laughs> no, I, I love like, this so yeah, much I that I gave Michael like, all of my issues. On <laughs> Final Crisis. Yeah, well, I, I don't blame you on that. But the JLA run, I thought, was was a really strong run. And, and yeah, very I enjoyable. Didn't like Howard Porter's work. You did or didn't? I didn't. I didn't like Howard Porter's work on JLA. I liked the issues... I like the stories, a lot of them. But when Mark Wade took over and had Brian Hitch with him, I th- suddenly thought this was much better. Sadly, Brian Hitch couldn't maintain a monthly schedule. Yeah, well, that's the thing about Hitch. He, he, he never has been able to maintain a monthly schedule, and things always go off the rails. Even when he was working with Brubaker, didn't they have to have uh, Butch guys come in and, and kind of bail him out? Yeah, towards the end of... Um, was that Captain America Reborn? Uh, well, I think it was. I think it was actually the. He definitely did reborn, and I thought even on the main series he was working on it. No, nope. I don't think Hitch did anything on the main series. Okay, not that I remember. I'm he made on some covers. I could. Oh, I could he definitely... did the covers for Man Out of Time, didn't he? I'm not sure. Man, that Who's was that? Brian. Hitch? Brian Hitch. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I liked that series. That was yeah, really I loved good. that. That was update for Captain America's origin done properly, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Absolutely blinding stuff. All right. It seems like we're kind of running uh, out of steam here. <laughs> <laughs> We've run out of things to say about Electra. Let's talk about the movie some more. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I don't like the look of the kid who's playing uh, Harry. <laughs> but that may actually fit the character well. Like, yeah, he's not supposed to be James Franco, good-looking guy, is he? But you know, you know, everybody says, "Well, you can't, you know, you can't draw him with cornrows." He doesn't have cornrows. He's got a tight, curly hair, 
and and those lines are just where like the light hits it and stuff. It's not that he's got no hair in those spots. Yeah, to me that's like the people who criticize Superman for him blew her. It's like, do you understand how comics work at all? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that that actually kind of I, I hate that criticism, <laughs> but that's just me. But uh, yeah, I don't I don't really have much much else on the movie until I actually get to see it. Yeah, I think we're going to go next week. I think Michael and I are going to go on Wednesday when it's Orange Wednesday, which is you text your mobile phone company, which is Orange, and they send you a text back and you show it at the the cashier and you get uh, a free ticket to buy one get one free. Oh, nice. Wow, that's cool. So I think we'll go on Wednesday and watch it. Yeah, I don't know when that week that weekend in particular is very very busy, so I'm not sure. Oh, have you not got it yet? All right, it opened here Thursday. Oh, yeah, yeah. You guys get everything before us now. I don't yes. really understand well, the logic there, but on this particular occasion, I can understand it. I can because un- it's the Easter weekend and we're all off school, so I understand it opening this week over here because it's a holiday. That's when they're going to make the maximum money. Well, it's I didn't understand here too, though. I revealed. All right, I've got nothing then. Because <laughs> I didn't under Captain America. I mean, you lot gave me shit for this, which is fair enough. But it opened everywhere before it opened in America. Russia. I don't, I don't got know it what before. The reasoning you, Ukraine is. got it before you did. Unless their thought is to create some buzz and word of mouth on the advance reviews. Possibly. Think, but the spoilers kind of. I don't. I don't know. I, I don't like that. Yeah, well, I, I don't get it at all. In this day and age, if you guys had wanted to see Captain America before it opened in America, we live in a culture where you could have done that. To me, simultaneous release seems to be the way forward. It's, for it makes everything. more sense to me. Yeah, that's that's my thinking as well. But they did whatever they did for whatever reason. I do wonder if it's... I did. Th- I think it was Scott Rifen who said somebody had been predicting that the film wouldn't play well overseas because he's Captain America, which I think is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Not from what's not Scott, obviously the person who said this, and it's just because it's Captain America, it's not going to play in other countries. And I like the fact that it's it's busted that theory wide open well, by performing exceptionally from, well. There's that I forget what the name of it, something fool or something, which I think is proving a very apt name. I think they're trying to be ironic with that name, but I think it's proving to be pretty apt. But they're the ones, there's those assholes that keep posting stuff on Yahoo. I see it on Yahoo News all the time about every Marvel movie that's, that's you know, in the pipeline uh, about to hit. They keep predicting doom and gloom. And there was this big story about, you know, there's no way in the world that Captain America 2 can, can possibly be successful for Marvel defined, you know, de- as based on Marvel's definition of, success and you know this this you know just all this doom and and then it comes out and it does gangbusters so at this Mm -hmm. point i'm i'm not even going to click on their stories anymore because they've had a string of them that have all been essentially the same thing and they've just gotten ridiculous and how they have any credibility left anymore to still be somehow like one of the official fan voices it is beyond me because they're just silly at this point yeah because i think i mean we don't we as fans we don't judge it purely on box office but ultimately that's what it's judged on hasn't cap 2 made more than thor 2 i i would think at least at this point in its release it probably has but i don't know numbers 
But last I, I looked, it, I, I want to say it was at least a hundred mil more, I think. Right. But yeah, don't hold me to that. It has I'm gotten almost universally positive reviews. I've not seen a, a single any... negative review. Yeah, I haven't heard any serious criticisms of the movie. I mean, I, there's there's been little things here and there. Well, I wish they'd done this. Well, I wish they'd done that. But as far as I haven't yet heard anybody say, oh, I, I thought it was awful, you know, no. or, you know, that just wasn't, you know, any good or anything like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've seen a couple of pretentious ones. You know, people are basically saying a comic book movie doesn't deserve to be this good. I've seen a couple of them. And I've seen a couple of snooty ones where they've said you can't put a two-dimensional cartoon character in the middle of a, a complex plot like this and expect to pull it off. But then they've kind of pulled that back by saying, but they do. But they managed to pull it off. And I honestly think if you're looking at him as a, com- as a 2D cartoon character, you've missed the complete point of Marvel Comics anyway. Exactly. So suddenly I'm like, why, why do I even listen to your opinion? I yeah. just, all I know is that you know, I, I'm given I'm given some hope by the success of this movie that I, I love the way that Steve is portrayed in this movie. Yes. He's an old fashioned superhero. He comes from old fashioned values. And he's he's steadfast in those values, even when it looks at times in the movie. And he even says something to the point himself when he's in the control room and delivering his little speech. And he says, I don't care if I'm the only one here that feels this way. I know I'm right. And I'm going to do what it takes to, you know, to solve this situation. I love that. I love that. Yes. And why we you and I, get you, we a Superman that, that yep. is presented that way pains me deeply because that, that speech, while it is delivered by by Captain America, that's a Superman style speech of this is the right thing to do. I might be the only person that feels this way, but I, I am rock solid in my confidence that this is the right thing to do. And so I'm going to do the right thing. Love that. I think that's the defining moment and the defining characteristic of that film and of that character. And I love and applaud Marvel studios for having the balls to present that on the silver screen. And they didn't need to take Steve Rogers and muddy him up or sully him or darken him or anything to make him interesting and in a in a character. So if somebody sees that as, oh, here's this white bread guy from the 40s and oh, he's boring and he's two-dimensional, screw you. I don't care if that's how you see him because those characteristics that you see as bland and white bread and boring are the very same characteristics I see and go, God damn it, give me more of that. Hey man. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. 
Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com and is a registered trademark of DiManzocor of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.